to this room each day. Mm-hmm. And and then that room could be the pre-room to that room, and we could start a little daisy chain, you know. And then <laughs> and then and then if you wanted, I could drop by and share, you know, uh, a tech headline in there or whatever. I mean, anyone can drop by and uh, share whatever they want. So it's a casual chat room. We normally have some questions occasionally, you know, just uh, like uh, actually initially when there were more people, we, there were people from the medtech side who used to do a health and well-being on the Monday side of it. It used to be there, but because they dropped off, uh, we kind of have just uh, kind of done it for twice because the world is opening up. So people are not available anymore at 5 a.m. Yeah. And then... Also, this week, starting today, we meet, mm-hmm. you know, we meet twice a day. Um, and this one is the 7 a.m. UK. And normally we also meet 4 p.m. UK. But now we're going to start meeting 3 p.m. UK this week. We're going to try out moving starting an hour earlier. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Go ahead. What's the thesis? Like, why move it up an hour? Why move it up an hour? Because our friend Justin can, uh, yeah. and David... Uh-huh do a room at uh, 1 p.m. UK. And they have a great audience there, and I hang out there. And then the room ends, and then there's an hour gap, and then that room. And we thought, well, let's put them together so that we can just go one to the other. Top of the hour. And the people on the West Coast that that room is mainly meant for are waking up at... A lot of them wake up at 7 a.m. and we were starting it at 8 a.m. So we're going to try it at 7 a.m. See if that works for them. Okay, let's do this. It's trio one. Yep. Uh, uh, t- Tyler, wouldn't yes. it be a nice feature to to have the possibility to move a room to a new topic? Yes. Well, people mention uh, Johan. Johan thinks he's the first to think of that idea. Johan, people have been talking about that since 10 minutes after the first person who ever downloaded the app. <laughs> Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, you, yeah, and Twitter Space—it's so common that Twitter Spaces already enables that, and they haven't even really launched yet. And um, Clubhouse, for the first year, mentioned it in every town hall meeting. They recognized that that question came up every week, and I'm not sure why they're why they're not doing that for database reasons. I imagine I'm not sure why. Carl, maybe Carl has a guess from a technical standpoint, if there's some difficulty that I'm not imagining. But, um, yep, that would be fantastic. I think it would I think it would benefit all the rooms in Clubhouse if, if people could start editing the names of the room. The, here's the problem. Ah, I think I figured out the problem. The problem is there's a lot of people, a lot of room creators who honestly don't really have a good content to make they're just purely trying to make names of rooms that will people will find attractive and come into and so click what the what, click baiting, you're saying. yes what the what will happen is they will sit and test and rechange the name of the room every two minutes until they find one that people stick to and then people will start coming in and that's just a very incredibly lazy way of you know trying to trick people into conversations it's it's not just that people would rotate the room name to make it look like a new room if if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It it does get a little messy. I can see why they don't do it. Uh, it's similar to why Twitter doesn't let, allow you to edit your tweet. Because if, yeah, if you really want to stop. That's more for accountability, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if I mean, you can delete it 
and then you can make a new one. And same with your room. Well, you know, so it's a similar issue, actually, socially. It's not even it's not so much a technical issue. It's more of a social engineering issue. Um, but you're right. Let, let, let's jump in. Hey, Pierre, um, let's do some news because we're at the top of the hour. And welcome back, everybody. Hope you had a fantastic, lovely weekend. I was watching webcams around the world. That, that could be a show in its own. And um, it looked beautiful pretty much everywhere. The, especially up in the Nordics. Jeez, man, the spring has arrived. And uh, what a beautiful day Stockholm had yesterday. And I hope it was beautiful wherever you were. There's a whole bunch of beautiful headlines to jump into. Does anyone burning with one? I think Akil, yep. Akil was yep. burning with one. What, which one were you burning with, Akil? Uh, I was burning with the Twitter one, but I've got something more interesting here. Um, okay. AI mechanism claims to detect disinformation with 96% accuracy, even trace its source. The AI detects misinformation. Yes? Uh, yep, yep. Okay. What's the source of that one? Uh, so that's from uh, Gadgets 360, but they pick up articles from somewhere else. Yes. Um, so a team at MIT uh, kind of uh, built this thing. They started the project in 2014. Um, and they were kind of scratching their heads on how to combat the disinformation and whatnot post the elections. And uh, it seems that they have built... Uh, a bunch of algorithms that kind of do that. Ninety-six percent accuracy. Wow. Yep. I'm reading. I just found the article. Uh, did you tweet it to uh, the tech news? Yes. Oh, you did. Yeah. So, yeah. I need to find it from you. How long ago? Oh, here it is right now. Perfect. I'm retweeting your tweet. Okay. Thank you. So, for everyone who might be new, there is this room that we are talking in, which is fun and exciting, and you and I hope you love it. I'm sure you will. There's a second screen if you want to play on the second screen along with us which is on twitter our twitter account where i tweet out every article we talk about so we're going to talk about this article ai mechanism claims to detect disinformation with 96 percent accuracy and i it's like uh akil found this article and tweeted it from his twitter account he included our twitter account as part of his tweet T-N-A-T-W, short for Tech News Around the World. And now I've retweeted it to our very fast-growing list. I think we're up to 1,500 followers now. We're adding about 100 a day. It's really fantastic. And um, now everyone can tweet in articles. If it's cool, we retweet it. And now it's this group co-creation effort where we're tweeting out the best stuff that people tweet in. And all you have to do, if you want us to see it and retweet it, is include our Twitter account, T-N-A-T-W. Just like uh, Akil just did, which you will see if you go to our Twitter account, and uh, you can click this article and all the topics we talk about. You can, and people are retweeting it already. Uh, retweeting and, it. And like chances it. are, if you comment on it, um, we and you can't get on stage because you're driving or oh, you're doing something. Oh, that's genius. We'll 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 we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep uh, all of us here. We'll keep an eye on the comments and just right. uh, zip your con uh, comments in, right? So you're actually in the conversation yep. while you're driving or you oh, know in the office or whatever, right? Yep. If you're in the audience, yeah. I mean, if you're in the audience, and you want to jump up on stage, you can do that too. But if for some reason you'd rather just comment on Twitter on the article that you know we're retweeting from Akil here. Uh, this is a great topic. Um, 96% accuracy. That's blowing my mind. So it says a team attempted to better understand disinformation drives and tried to create a mechanism to detect such campaigns. At MIT, which is that's the school that could do something like this, a team at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory Artificial Intelligence Software Architectures and Algorithms Group. Holy Jesus, you couldn't think of a longer name for your group? My <laughs> God. 
the Lincoln Laboratories Artificial Intelligence Software Architecture and Algorithms Group. Say that five times fast. Uh, they attempt <laughs> the LLAISAAG. Holy shit, that's a long name for a group. Uh, they attempted to better understand disinformation campaigns and also aimed to create a mechanism to detect them. The objective of the reconnaissance... <laughs> oh my God, these guys. The reconnaissance of influence operations program was also to ensure the ones spreading the misinformation on social media platforms are identified. The teams published a paper earlier this year uh, uh, in the National Academy of Sciences and was honored with an, uh, a top 100 award as well. The work of the project has began in 2014, and the team noticed increasing and unusual activity in social media data from accounts that had appeared to be pushing pro-Russian narratives. Wow. <laughs> wow. Steve Smith, a staff member at the lab and a member of the team, told MIT News that they were kind of scratching. We are kind of scratching our heads. And indeed, there's a graphic where they go into all the misinformation and disinformation campaigns and try and figure out the source. And overwhelmingly, uh, the number one sources are, yeah, Russian. Uh, and then they keep track of which of those sources have been suspended. And in the graphic, you'll see which ones have been suspended. RT America from the Russian media outlet ha has not been suspended, <laughs> the Twitter account. Um, and, there, and to be fair, there's a... a right-wingish American out, uh, source as well. Um, so these are not na national, you know, specific. Um, but what a fantastic article here. I just want to see if there's another juicy quote here that we can pull out. It says, defending against disinformation is not only a matter of national security, but also about protecting democracy, they said. Um, very cool topic about the, the using AI to find the sources of misinformation on social networks. And, well, what do you know, Joe? It turns out to be a whole lot of Russia. Uh, Edward Cow, uh, one of the members of the research team, said that earlier, if people wanted to know who was more influential, they just looked at activity accounts. And what we found is that in many cases, this is not sufficient. It doesn't actually tell you the impact of the accounts on the social network. MIT News quoted Cow as saying, Cow developed a statistical approach, which is now used to discover if social media account is spreading disinformation as well as how much it causes the network as a whole to change and amplify the message. What an interest. Yeah, this is where the geeks really know what the fuck they're doing. Um, they get into the data of how much impact a tweet has, not how much apparent influence that one account uh, would seem to have by its followers. That's ultimately doesn't matter the number of followers or whatnot. What matters is how eager its followers are to retweet its content. And that tells you how much actual impact it has downstream. So that, and that's the essence of what they did, was they were calculating who has influence downstream. And that's different than, you have people with a million followers, but their followers don't retweet their stuff. You can think of some of the Kardashian sisters, for example. And then you've got some incredible thought leaders. Elon Musk has some pretty big uh, influence on Twitter when he tweets stuff. Like, it gets a lot of retweets um, just as an example that it, it isn't necessarily your your follower count and uh, it's how the downstream effects of your followers and then their followers and then their followers and how much influence you can spread, whether positive or negative. In this case, they're focusing on 
the sources of what's shaping these disinformation campaigns of negative uh, fake news, fake news campaigns. That, uh, and by the way, and interactions, interactions with foreign media. Yep. Um, but but products, why, right? why, why is this so important? Well, this is this happens to be more timely than one might first assume, because we just had a one of these come up last week, if you were with us last week, where a some shady character was contacting YouTube bloggers in France and Germany, asking them to say that Pfizer has a higher mortality rate than other vaccines and offering them to uh, between 1,500 and 5,000 euros to say so to their followers on YouTube. And one of these people with a million YouTube followers went to the press and said, hey, this shadowy figure claims to be a PR agency from London. Do you guys ever heard of these people? And then the French intelligence officers got involved, and then they tracked it back to, what do you know, Joe, our friend Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and... That's why this article is so interesting, and uh, it's interesting how the geeks are getting involved to help the intelligence community figure out uh, some of the sources of these um, misinformation campaigns. Nice so article. Tyler, yeah. Tyler, Tyler may, may I ask a, may I add a quick comment? Uh, Lincoln Lab is a Department of Defense laboratory focused on national security. It's not in Cambridge, it's in Lexington, Mass, and it's managed by MIT. Yes. I hate to be ah. so fastidious, no, no, but th I believe this is... This is pretty no, that's brilliant. The brand. That's, yeah. yeah, so I think that explains some of their language. Uh -huh. It also demonstrates some really good marketing on MIT's behalf because yep. while they do manage it, it's not quite MIT. Ah, I Googled the name of, well, by the way, it's not the Lincoln Lab we're talking about. It's the Lincoln Lab's AI software architecture and algorithm group, which might not necessarily be based in the same city as Lincoln Lab, by the way, because it's a group within the lab. And when Possible. I when I Google the name of the whole group, it comes up as MIT.edu, uh, Artificial Intelligence Software Architecture and Algorithms. Main website is on MIT.edu's website. So it's um, I'm I'll I'll retweet. I'll, Matt, what you know what I'll do is I'll include the link to the group, the Artificial Intelligence Software Architecture and Algorithms group, uh, at the Lincoln Laboratory, and let's see. And they're the their group website is totally branded MIT, et cetera, et cetera. You're right. It, their address is 244 Wood Street, Lexington, Massachusetts. But is where's um, where? Yeah, that's where the Lincoln Lab is. Yes. In Lex Lexington. So just an interesting tidbit. That uh, is correct. Yeah. By the way, that's fan that's a fantastic contribution, my friend. And oh, thank you. I was feeling guilty about being no, 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 no. That's exactly you're you're like a star on this. That's fantastic. We yeah, yeah. So I'm going to tread really lightly as I make this comment. Go ahead. But over the weekend, the Ukrainian ambassador to Thailand died suddenly. Um, on Kolipe, which is uh, an island in the south of Thailand. And so within the diplomatic community, there's some speculation um, in terms of, because apparently he was fine. He was vacationing with his son. He started, you know, vomiting. He was 45 years old. So, you know, young in my world. And um, then he died suddenly. And, and so I, I don't want to speculate too heavily, but you know, as I listen to what you're sharing now, I, I 
that's what's top of my mind. Um, Who was this again? Are, the, the Ukrainian ambassador to Thailand. Oh, so, my, oh um, my Lord. Ambassador Beshta. So, um, yeah, yeah. Again, I don't want to draw too many connections at this point because it's, you know, it's been less than 36 hours. But, you know, I have several friends who um, are in the diplomatic corps, serve as um, various representatives, ambassadors to um, different, to Thailand from different European countries. And so oh, yeah. I just... I share that to be, you know, just just as um, another data point. Um, yeah, yeah. Let, let's look into this for a second. Off. This could. Let's see if there's a, any any fire with this smoke here. Um, you're right. It's um, it's now being reported by all the top Thai publications on the ground. Um, no, even India, Hindustan Times just wrote an article. Okay. So the Ukrainian ambassador dies on Kolipe. And for those who don't know, Kolipe is a rather undeveloped island. It's quite, um, there's not a lot there, right? Really remote. And yeah. when I visited, you know, I had to take a 5 a.m. flight from Bangkok so that I could get to the southernmost airport, take a tuk-tuk into the city so that I can take a van shuttle two and a half hours to the port so that I could catch the last speedboat that left at 1 yeah. p.m. So you, it's you, really difficult. It's get hard to get in and out because of yeah. the limited number of boats going Absolutely. in and out. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. how remote it is. And that's how yeah. infrequently people go there. It's a very undeveloped island, it's but very, touch. very, very beautiful. Yeah. 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 And um, so the, here's here's what's going on thus far, because this is, yeah, today, you know, this is within the past 24 hours. It's like 16 hours ago. The Royal Thai Police have reported that the Ukrainian ambassador to Thailand, Mr. Andriy Beshta, 45 years old, died on Koh Lipe Island in southern Thailand on Sunday morning. This is highly unusual. Um, Royal Thai Police deputy spokesman uh, said uh, that Mr. Beshta and his 17-year-old son arrived on Koh Lipe Island on May 28th for a vacation and stayed at the Bunga Resort. And the ambassador's son told police his father went to bed at 11 p.m. Saturday. And on Sunday morning, he began vomiting, then lost consciousness and died shortly afterwards. Ambassador Beshta's death was reported on Kolipe at 530 in the morning. The body of the Ukrainian ambassador was later taken from Kolipe. According to the police spokesman, investigators found no traces of the room being forced open or of the ambassador being attacked. Uh, meanwhile, um, uh, some, but the governor said a preliminary autopsy is happening at the hospital. Uh, the mainland concluded he died of a heart attack. A swab test of coronavirus at the hospital was negative. We ruled out 100% that he died from corona. The body was taken out of the hospital. Ambassador Bush's government desired the return of his body to Ukraine as soon as possible. Uh, so speculation over his death. Here's where it gets interesting. Although no suggestions of foul play in the ambassador's death have yet been made, a degree of speculation is inevitable given the longstanding and ongoing hostility between Russia and Ukraine. Former Ukraine politician Viktor Yushchenko was defigured in 2004, dioxin poisoning linked to Russia. Um, in 2018, of the British government accused Russia of attempting murder and announced a series of punitive measures after the Nova. Novichok poisoning of former spy Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia at their home with on the doorknob. Those of you who remember that one with those two friendly Russian tourists who went out to the middle of nowhere to visit, just happened to walk past his house. Very amazing coincidence. Uh, Russia is also widely believed to be behind the 
Novichok poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, yeah, so that's still ongoing. In 2014, Russia invaded and annexed the Ukraine territory of Crimea. And so that's why when somebody dies in an unusual way like this, um, especially Ukrainian government folks. Um, and by the way, this again, I don't I don't want to, you know, push, you know, conspiracy theories. But uh, it is this time of year, the, the tourists who are here in Thailand, I can tell you because I'm in a somewhat touristy area of Thailand, there's quite a bit of Russians that visit thailand around well, the... tyler um yeah. uh you might want to play your exiles theme song again i, I just shared a, an article here okay uh microwave weapon concerns have spread to the department of homeland security oh boy which is encouraging employees to report unexplained health incidents for uh, a dhs memo that's been leaked did you just tweet this to the tech news twitter account yeah i'm looking Ah, uh, here joaquin right found it microwave oh this is crazy oh this is really crazy look at this everybody and by the way akil's tweet is already up to like seven eight or nine retweets already um and this one that joaquin just sent in is truly wild this is uh, that the, the x we need something better than the x files music microwave weapon concerns spread uh, concerns of a microwave weapon this is a new style of weapon which was first reported in havana cuba by the way by the newly reopened american embassy which i happen to be at the opening ceremony of the u.s embassy in havana when it was being opened and uh, shortly thereafter the new ambassadors to cuba all started reporting very bizarre um symptoms uh, including nausea and they felt like they were being killed by something using their own language but they couldn't explain it when when searching their body for anything they couldn't find anything and it is firmly be held belief oh and it mentions it right here in this article the havana syndrome they're calling this that this microwave weapon um in havana uh you you got to see this it says Here's the headline. Uh, it says microwave weapon concerns spread to Department of Homeland Security. Subheadline: A memo obtained reveals that CIA bred fears of Havana syndrome have reached the department that houses the ICE and the CBP. U.S. government suspicions about microwave weapon attacks have apparently spread to the Department of Homeland Security, the nation's largest federal law enforcement body encompassing agencies like Immigration and Customs Enforcement, as well as the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Protection, according to an internal DHS memo obtained uh, on Thursday. The DHS Deputy uh, Undersecretary sent a memo to department personnel encouraging them to report unexplained health incidents to medical officials with DHS or to the State Department. The memo goes on to announce that the DHS is partnering with our interagency colleagues to ensure comprehensive public health protocols and blah, blah, blah. Now, what's interesting about this is, here, here's some of the interesting quotes here. The DHS memo describes the gamut of reported Havana syndrome effects. Here they are. An intense, high-pitched, piercing sound following by unexplained specific medical symptoms, including hearing loss, dizziness, ringing in the ears, balance problems, fatigue, trouble concentrating, vision changes. Uh, anyone experiencing those systems is encouraged to notify DHS, Workforce Health and Safety, and Chief Medical Officers or 
etc. One of Havana Syndrome's most prominent skeptics, Sharon Weinberger, DC bureau chief uh, for Yahoo News, uh, has maintained that there are a myriad of other potential explanations for the symptoms and that no leading theory has been established in a peer-reviewed journal. Okay. Uh, but the point is, is that this first started, as I said, even before I read this article, that this first was first became um, a theory in amongst the uh, U.S. ambassadors who were stationed to the newly opened Havana embassy in Cuba under Obama. And um, nearly immediately, they all started having these really bizarre symptoms, uh, which is very strange indeed. And now the the idea is that this is spreading beyond Havana. And um, they had to take rather immediate measures to remove those people and start putting in defenses. I imagine that the Havana embassy has now been um, retrofitted to block these uh, microwaves uh and, you know making a faraday cage out of the uh out of the embassy perhaps and that, uh, assumedly it stopped or else we would still know about it i imagine but you're right uh, this is you know a former cia officials who spoke with this uh, outlet the intercept broadly agreed on the existence of the havana syndrome but not on its perpetrator meaning it's not clear who's doing it because even in havana it's still assumed that it could be Russians, because if those who remember the Cuban Missile Crisis, that was essentially Russia. So uh, um, the, the nuclear missiles that Cuba had were obviously not their own. And it, it was very obviously, very clearly Russians who were providing the nuclear missiles to Cuba at that time. Anyway, so um, and it's assumed that there, the, there's still Russian involvement there. So the, the article continues, it has been uh, attributed in speculation to the Chinese, Russian, or Cuban governments, this microwave technology, uh, which the symptoms described are broad. They cover, they converge on their neurological focus, <clears throat> often resembling the effects of simple head trauma, which includes nausea. Oh, yeah. So very strange indeed. Isn't this the plot of Batman Begins? Uh, I don't remember Batman Begins myself, but that that could be. But uh, send the if you could tweet that, <laughs> that would be interesting. And by the way, so Poppy just found an article as she's renowned for doing fantastic work on this, the the mystery of the immaculate concussion uh, from GQ. Uh, it's about a senior CIA official tasked with getting through tough on Russia, and then one night in Moscow, his life changed uh, with a miraculous kind of concussion and and then she found another article about the Havana syndrome how a directed energy weapon may be injuring american intelligence operatives and that the genius behind it of course is that it leaves no traces of any kind and why do we mention this because previously the the victims of vladimir putin have notably had as navalny just had in the in the, his plane when he had to land in berlin um, he was poisoned and they found, you know, the source of that poisoning, that isotope, which has consistently been tracked back to the Kremlin. Hardly a surprise if you know who Navalny. Uh, and similarly to the former Russian intelligence officers based outside, you know, out in the UK, who, you know, if you follow these things even loosely, you start to see the pattern that uh, this particular isotope is used to buy um, the Kremlin to kind of end 
and that gentleman in the Ukraine, the 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 leading politician in Ukraine. And now this person in the Ukraine, that isotope, by the way, is very tricky to test for. Here's where this gets interesting, because the gentleman in Koh Lipe, Thailand today, who died of very suspicious symptoms, um, is the Koh Lipe or, or the hospital in Thailand, I can assure you, is not able to test for that Russian isotope. So his body needs to be sent back to the Ukraine where it can be, and then they can determine if he was uh, poisoned by, you know, our friends uh, in Moscow. So um, it's to, we'll see if there's a future headline up on that. And it took time to, to see uh, similarly when um, anyone gets poisoned by that. Very often it's, hospitals are unable to detect it. That's kind of the sinister element of it. But these microwaves are truly impossible to to gain any firm evidence that uh, you know people are being manipulated by these microwaves, so that's what makes them so concerning. T you know? Tyler, by yeah. isotope, do you mean do you mean uh, a nerve agent? I read that it was actually a nerve agent that was responsible for the Alexei Navalny's poisoning. Yes, do, do you recall the name of it? Uh, no, Novichok. Novichok. Novichok, right? Uh, and, Novichok. It, yeah, Novichok. It, it's a radio. Is it? It's radioactive. Is the the point I was trying to make? Yeah. No, okay. that's a, this is a chemical com, uh, composition. Uh, the thing you is the uh, uh, it was one of the presidents of one of the small former Russia USSR states that were actually by by that isotope. I don't remember the name ah. of the isotope. Okay, thank you for the clarification. So could it be an isomer? Uh, Johan would. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. It was put, put, put pollutium or something like that. I don't. I was reading that it was either uh, in his tea at the airport. Oh, your color. Underpants. Okay. Apparently, well, it was in his underpants. His lawyer was actually on Clubhouse. A friend of mine did a room with him uh, about two, three months ago. Okay. Um, uh, Poppy's sharing some other interesting headlines here from uh, Vietnam, kind of keeping it in Southeast Asia for a second. I'm retweeting Poppy's tweet. Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam, where I have one of my dear friends happens to live, uh, Lucas, um, from Stockholm. Some of you might know him, some of my Swedish friends on stage. Um, Vietnam, I, just before I read this article, it says uh, Ho Chi Minh, uh, which, by the way, Ho Chi Minh City is an incredibly huge city. Most Americans aren't aware of just how big it is. It's, you know, far bigger than Stockholm. <laughs> um in Ho Chi Minh, I believe it's 10 million people, just for measure. I mean, most Americans have no idea. Like, it would be an incredibly large American city, um, one of the largest American cities, and it's a city they don't even know exists, Ho Chi Minh City. And so Ho Chi Minh City, and, and it's incredibly dense, by the way, Vietnam to test the entire city of Ho Chi Minh City because of this new... Um, um, COVID variant that we talked about on Friday when the news was breaking that Vietnam has discovered a new variant which is remarkably uh, contagious um, or easy to catch, we should say. Because And they're saying it's a mix of the UK and the Indian variants and it's the most um, the most contagious variant yet yet discovered, which makes it very concerning. And And here's what makes it really concerning. Vietnam, 110 million people, essentially has had no COVID from the beginning. Essentially zero. They effectively won the COVID Olympics, right? 
And America very notably lost the COVID Olympics, handedly just got its ass destroyed in the COVID Olympics, right? There, we were supposed to have the Olympics two years ago. We did. It was called COVID. And we actually found out who won. And Vietnam won, all right? And America lost and Europe, everyone in Europe lost tragically. Come, I mean, just embarrassingly, right? And very notably, Vietnam won. And Thailand got the got the silver, and you know there's a, there's a toss up between Taiwan um, and a few other Asian places who actually did quite remarkably well. And without going into all the reasons why, I just want to highlight the fact of just how amazingly well Vietnam did. Uh, they essentially didn't have it because they controlled it. They had little tiny waves of it that they stopped. So did Thailand, by the way. We had like two little waves. We killed them. Unlike other places where you got waves and you let them run out of control willy-nilly, we had our little waves, we took the correct measures, and we ended them. And then lately, I mean in the last week or two, we've got these incredibly new, uh, uh, stronger variations. And unfortunately, because the, the vaccines were being created in the U.S. initially, the U.S. is now getting vaccinated, thank God, because I, I hate to wonder what would happen if these new much more contagious variations make it back to the Europe and the U.S. Holy shit, you guys would be fucked. Because if we were able to stop the previous ones and we're not able to stop these new ones, you guys would be toast. So, um, well, and the unvaccinated population uh, will be affected. Yeah. So it's it. Yeah, it's to be determined how this plays out, right? But my point is, this headline now says we we discovered on Friday. And we shared while the news was breaking that Vietnam had discovered this new variation they are very worried about. We are in Thailand as well. And now, just to show you how serious Vietnam is and why they won the gold medal of the COVID Olympics, Vietnam to test the entire city of Ho Chi Minh City, about 10 million people, um, amid new variation fears. Vietnam hopes to tackle the new COVID outbreak by testing the entire population of Ho Chi Minh City and introducing new social distancing measures. The efforts come in response to a new cluster linked to a religious mission. Vietnam has had relative success in controlling the virus, but cases have been rising over past weeks. Over the weekend, officials warned of a new, very dangerous hybrid variant discovered in the country. The government says the new variant combination combines features of the variants first identified in India and the UK and is easily transmissible by air. Overall, the country has registered over 7,000 infections and 47 deaths, which to them is a complete failure of 110 million people with 47 deaths. They are embarrassed and they need to take immediate action and vaccinate the entire or test the entire city of 10 million people, just to give you an idea of how a, a functioning government works uh, during a pandemic. So, Tyler? Yes. Hey, it's MA. Good morning. I have a question because you, you stated something in there that had me curious. Where were the individual, where was the group coming back? You said they came from a religious mission. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to make sure I tweet this out so everyone can read okay. with their own eye. Those who want to, I did tweet it from Poppy. Thank you, Poppy. Um, the details of this, it's from the BBC. It says the latest outbreak in Ho Chi Minh City is centered around a Christian mission, which had seen at least 125 positive cases and accounts for most of the city's infections. Those living in the vicinity of the cluster have already been tested and are in lockdown. Officials now plan to test the rest of Ho Chi Minh City's 13 million people. Did I say 10? I'm sorry. It's 13 million people. That's only three more Stockholms. So, or one more Berlin. Um, so again, it would be one of the U.S.'s largest cities with 13 million people. It would rank in the top three. So, uh, 
at a testing rate of 100,000 people per day, the effort would take the authorities more than four months to complete. In addition to testing, officials are now announcing new social distancing measures across the city for 15 days starting today. Shops and restaurants are closed and religious activities have been suspended. And then the quote is, all, at all events that gather more than 10 people in public are banned citywide, but the city is considering to lower the number of people to just five in any gathering. And by the way, I should mention, as good as uh, Vietnam has been in stopping COVID previously, they never had uh, home arrest. Neither did Thailand. We were never forced to stay at home. Just just so you know. <laughs> and, and essentially, businesses were allowed to operate. You had to do takeout delivery for most restaurants. And there were a few businesses that did have to close, notably movie theaters and gyms. But um, and Tyler, what about what about travel policy? Were, yes. via, uh, were Vietnam, were they prohibiting outsiders from Correct. coming into Vietnam? Not prohibiting, okay. not prohibiting. They were they were forcing quarantines for people who want to enter, same as Bangkok. Bangkok, the most visited city on the planet by far, more than London, Paris, Tokyo, etc. Bang- uh, Thailand's was very simple. They controlled the virus geographically. They removed it internally, and then they made anyone who arrived do a 14-day mandatory quarantine. And yeah. that's how, And then, by the way, a lot of the people who arrived did have it. And every day, but Tyler, yes, even even for Vietnam, yeah. they weren't letting people in unless you had a diplomatic passport. You could, a, you could, I, I can't speak authoritatively on the on how Vietnam handled arrivals, but if it was, I can tell you exactly how Thailand handled the arrivals. Was everyone who arrived and anyone could arrive, you had to do a fourteen day very firm quarantine, which was incredibly yeah. highly monitored, and you got tested every three days as part of that. And a lot of those people did have COVID, but that COVID didn't get into the cities because it only stayed in your hotel room. Well, that's how that's how it's done. That's how it's done. Yeah. And speak of that in the present tense, Tyler. So we went from 14 day quarantine to, I think, seven day and then the new wave hit. So we're back to 14 days. Um, You know, my friend who's EU ambassador to Thailand just returned um, from Europe and he too had to complete 14 days. And in talking with a number of friends who've re-entered the country, it feels like solitary confinement. <laughs> you know, their their meals are all but slid under their doors, you know, for the first week. And then they could get an hour of interactivity uh, a day. So it's, it's pretty intense, well, still is. And here's the weird thing. There's an island in Thailand called Phuket. And it was reported yesterday, and it's been rumored for a while, Phuket is going to open itself up to no quarantine starting July 1st, one month from now. One month from now, it's official. Phuket is going to be open, no quarantine, but under the following conditions. The person arriving must have been vaccinated and show proof of vaccination, must be tested, obviously will be tested upon arrival, and show prior to boarding that they have a negative test and upon arrival be tested and have a negative test before they're let out of the airport, uh, which is a safe zone in itself. And so, and more interestingly, the people of Phuket had to opt in to agree that 70% of the population had to be vaccinated. So they're quickly vaccinating everybody on the island of Phuket because it's a tourist destination. It's a controllable destination. The arrivals, as I mentioned, must have been vaccinated, have proof of vaccination, have, have proof of negative status, and they must stay on the island for at least five days. And now Koh Samui, one of the other big tourist islands, is replicating the same thing, and they expect to have the same thing where they are allowed to accept people start in one month. 
uh, for people who are vaccinated. And that is going to be very interesting to watch. Um, and it's it's an unfortunate situation because the the tourist those tourism islands, Koh Samui and Koh, and Phuket, the two biggest tourism islands, are so uh, uh, been shut down because of the no tourism now for over a year that many of the businesses are are about to you know they're on life support and about to permanently die uh, and unable to you know resuscitate themselves unless they get people in quickly. And this is sort of the race uh, kind of cutting or walking the fine line here. Uh, getting a little, um, it's a little bit desperate, but I, I, they don't really have a choice. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. Tyler, what role Tyler. do you think that technology will play in the enforcement of those policies in Phuket and Here? Koh Samui and other yeah. places, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so the paper, you know, vaccine certificates could be easily forged. You know, do you think yeah. that they'll be linked with passport entrances? I mean, I, I think that there has to be something robust um, that would involve a certain degree of technology to make sure that they're legitimate. Yep. It's going to get tricky. And you're right. Uh, and Thailand is not strong on the technology front like, you know, Korea and Taiwan and these other places are around contact tracing. Thailand does contract contact tracing the old fashioned way where all the Thai local people know where all the tourists are. They Every person in the community has a the chat app and they take photos of, of people and say, you know, it's uh, they talk and they the locals know wh- where the tourists are and what they're doing. And it's it's an old school system, um, very paper based, word of mouth based system that's going to be I, I worry about what could happen. I just PTO'd our the numbers for Vietnam. Uh-huh. So, you know, if you look, uh, their baseline tends to be like around 10. Maybe they go up to like 50. They went up to like 100, maybe once or twice. Yeah. In the last 30 days, they went from a baseline of 10 cases yeah. per day to over 500. Yeah, that's just show- to give you an idea of yeah. how they're growing. It, it just shows you how uh, crazy this new variation is. And it shows you how they managed con- to control it previously um, with the regular traditional, uh, you know, good old fashioned COVID. And this new variation is just a whole other different beast. Um uh, but you Wait, know. did you say good old fashioned COVID? Good old fashioned original, the original, you know, original recipe, like the old uh, Coke, Coke classic, the, OG. the, the OG. first variant, the OG you COVID. Know, the, Wuhan, the Wuhan was a variant too. <laughs> oh, was it? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, of course. Um, Tyler, I wanted to ask, ask a question on um, the, uh, uh, the tourism in Thailand, yeah. Phuket. Yeah, is Eastern Europe and Russian tourists a big portion of that? Good question. Because here in Tanzania, we saw a huge bump in tourism. As you know, Tanzania decided to ignore it last year. We cost us our president. Um, but we opened up Zanzibar and we got a massive Russian influence that's yep. actually altered the island's yes. tourist dynamics for probably forever. But yep. I think the part of the reason is that a lot of those tourists that would go to Thailand normally, yep. um, Phuket, etc., were then um, lured into Zanzibar. Yep. And we even opened up direct flights from Moscow. Yep. Um, and uh, we, essentially, we had basically like 80% of the tourists in Zanzibar for the last year coming from Russia yep. um, and other Eastern European countries. So I'm wondering if... Uh, if that if, if it is a big portion of the tourists that come to uh, Thailand it are is. Eastern European Russians. Yeah. And, and By the way, here's a little trivia that. for you. Phuket is the ninth most visited city on the planet. Uh, Bangkok, and this is Wikipedia. In 2019, Bangkok ranked first, surpassing Paris and London <clears throat> in MasterCard's list of global destination cities. 
with 22, nearly 23 million visitors. Phuket, they ranked as 14th with 10 million visitors. And Pattaya, and Pattaya as 15th globally with 10 million visitors. So three, uh, three of the top 15 cities in the world are in Thailand. Uh, Bangkok, number one. Phuket, number 14. Pattaya, number 15. Uh, and by the way, Pattaya is Bangkok. So if you add those to Pattaya is just down the street from Bangkok. And if you add Bangkok and Pattaya together, then it's wildly, overwhelmingly by no one's even close. Paris is not even close. So it's that you get a sense for how difficult the challenge it is to deal with uh, COVID for Thailand, despite the fact that it got the silver in the COVID Olympics. So, and I would say yeah. since 2016, the largest uh, segment of Thai tourism has been a growing population of Chinese tourists from secondary and tertiary cities. Correct. And so, um, you know, it was interesting because maybe three, four, five months into OG COVID, um, the Thai government announced that there would be a tourism bubble with China. Right. And, you know, having friends with the tourism, having friends within and who work with the tourism authority of Thailand, you know, I learned that that policy was never vetted um, with the Chinese government. And so the Chinese government said, no, 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 no. We want to keep our tourists and our tourism um, yen, yuan in, in China. And so they position Chinese southern cities as tourist destinations just to try to Correct. help revive those economies as yep. well. But, but yes, yeah, so lots of European... Um, Eastern European, um, and then Chinese, I would yeah. say. Yeah, so the, the Wikipedia page called Tourism in Thailand, perfectly, this is a, a stunningly beautiful chart where they rank every year since 2006 till 2019, the number of visitors from every country. And China ranks number one every year, uh, number, followed by Malaysia, then India, then South Korea, then Laos, then Japan, then Russia, then the U.S., and for context, China last year had uh, 11 million visitors. Russia had 1.5 million visitors. Russia was seventh. China was number one. Um, but those numbers are growing uh, in terms of growth of visitors in the projected into the future. It will continue to be more Russian and more Chinese as the Europeans say, yeah, no, thank you. We will start going to new places. Uh, they used to be Europeans. In fact, it really started out with the Swedes, who the Swedish king and the Thai king were very dear friends. And when I first started coming, it was a lot of Swedish restaurants. And, you, you know, and those are all gone unless you go to my island uh, where they're trying to escape the um, Chinese and Russians, to be honest. If you, if you ask the, your, the Nordic folks, you know, why they are going to Koh Lanta, uh, they're looking to find the old Thailand that they used to love 20 years ago when it was just the, the, the original Nordic backpackers. And now they're going to new places. And I think exactly. I, yeah. And this is where Zanzibar has benefit. Well, it's really strange because Zanzibar um, is a beautiful island um, and uh, it's been accelerating, becoming more and more touristy. But COVID has, and the fact that we let uh, tourists come in all last year has accelerated these tourists that were going to a place like Phuket. And so now it's altered the dynamics dramatically. And it's not just Zanzibar, even safari industry, which is obviously a high-end, typically high-end uh, endeavor, like very sort of old school British, um, you know, tea under a tent and all that. That's changed. You know, the, the, the tourists are coming wanting, where's my vodka, right? Uh, I, I even heard of one uh, group um, requesting strippers in, in the middle of Serengeti. You know, where, where are the strippers? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like, and, and famously last year, Zanzibar ran out of alcohol officially for the first time. 
uh, we had a boom and um, wow. nothing against the Russians, but they do drink a lot. And, it's, <laughs> and, and, and Zanzibar is a Muslim island. Um, and so we're seeing, a, you know, also drug uh, overdoses increase dramatically. Uh, and so we kind of have this. And so the, the fear now is that we have discovered uh, Zanzibar and maybe it will alter uh, our tourism dynamic going forward. It's not necessarily a one time only. If, why, why would those Russians go back to Thailand again? If right. Well, discovered Zanzibar? here's a, I'll, I'll tell, I mean, here, be, as a, somebody who owns a resort in Thailand, who knows all, all the other resort owners in the region, um, there's now an effort by the government to have a, a reshape the type of tourists who visit Thailand, to totally reshape the image of Thailand and no longer welcome the lower budget tourists. Thailand is now reshaping itself to be a more affluent uh, visitor destination. And at post COVID, because a lot of the cheaper backpacker places that, you know, were $5 a night, those are, have all died anyways. They don't want them. The Thailand doesn't want them to come back. They want to make it a four star, five star uh, destination for more affluent families. And they don't even want to welcome what they built their tourism base on, which was the, the backpackers. And they're telling people, no. We don't want backpackers. As a matter of fact, please show us your bank statement when you arrive at immigration. That's not a joke. And if you don't in have short term, Tyler, yeah. I think that's going to kill the. I think that's going to kill the GDP, and then yes. slowly bring it back up. Correct, and they're very conscious of that. But they, they because there's actually a what they've realized. This is, this is what they say internally is those budget tourists actually, you know, they don't spend a lot. And they did that. There has been reports in the publications here because of the, how important tourism is here. And there's been a lot of debate internally about these uh, lower budget tourists actually end up costing money because of the amount of headache they make for the local police and the resources, etc. So they want, they've realized that for each um, income bracket you go up, uh, the amount that they spend when they're here goes up five, ten x. So somebody you know in the that stays at a four star hotel spends ten times more than somebody who stays at a three star hotel. Somebody who stays at a five star hotel spends thirty times more than somebody who stays at a three star hotel. So bang for dollar, you want to attract those people, and so that's the the whole new plan for the Thailand tourism ministry. Well- and to bring the tech aspect into it, um, particularly with the Chinese tourists, you know, since the formation of ASEAN or the execution of the ASEAN Economic Community in 20, was it 2017, 2015? I don't know, a few years ago. Um, people who are first time international travelers, you know, originating in second and secondary and tertiary Chinese cities, they were part of these tour groups that were labeled zero bot tours because they used WeChat Pay and Alipay to pay for everything while they were in Thailand. So the money never circulated in the local economies. It all went back to their bank accounts, to their communities in China. And so even before COVID, there was this tension because these massive droves of people who had never been able to travel before for economic reasons suddenly had access because of the ASEAN economic community and there was incentive from within China to keep the money within China. And, and so, you know, certain islands had to be closed down because of the econo- or the environmental impact, you know, on the coral and, you know, it was just happening so much 
um, more quickly because of the un unregulated growth, if you will, of that particular segment and tied back to, you know, Alipay and WeChat Pay. So it'll be really interesting because it, you know, there was this codependent relationship that wasn't necessarily good for the, or for the environment nor the economy, but there still was a dependence on that tourist segment. Yeah. Um, more headlines popping in here. One, one that um, jumps out at me, the Google, uh, just kind of changing topics kind of abruptly, sorry, because <laughs> we uh, enough. You had sound for changing topics. Uh, yeah, I, I have it right here. Thank you, Akil. So uh, on to more traditional tech stuff about Google here. There is now court documents detailing that Google is tracking users even when they don't want to be tracked uh, geographically inside of your uh, phone, your smartphone. And in the court documents detail Google's user location data collection efforts to make popular private privacy settings harder to find. They're intentionally making the settings to, to turn off uh, their ability to track you. They're intentionally trying to hide those has now been revealed and they've admitted it internally. And there's pressure on partners like LG and other handset manufacturers to do the same, to make it difficult for you to figure out how to turn off the tracking of you. Um, that's now been revealed in Google Documents. And these are essentially internal emails that have now been revealed. Uh, as Dave Weiner says on, on Twitter, and for those who don't know, Dave Weiner was a real pioneer in helping develop the internet as we know it in some sense. He developed RSS uh, feed. Google continued collecting location data even when users turned off various location sharing settings, made popular privacy settings harder to find, and even pressured LG and other phone makers into hiding settings precisely because users uh, liked those features. And I'm retweeting his tweet uh, to businessinsider.com and then uh, someone uh, named Alistair Barr, who's the uh, editor and writer, um, at Business Insider says, when Google tested versions of Android that made privacy settings easier to find, users took advantage of them and turned off the privacy, you know, <laughs> which, this which, is so funny. <laughs> which Google viewed as a problem. So then they went back and made it intentionally, they, again, hid those settings and made them harder to find so that users couldn't turn them off because that's part of their business. Their ad model, similar to Facebook, is based on data and tracking. And Apple recently updated their operating system, the, the, the iOS, you know, the operating system in your smartphone, your Apple I, iPhone. Um, and they're now making it harder for Facebook and Google to track you. And they, hard to believe their slogan used to be, uh, don't be evil. Right. They do no evil. Yeah. Well, now they've removed that essentially. But um it's, uh, What's just, funny about this is, yeah. is Android 12 is meant to be adding these features. And so why should we trust them to that, that if you turn the privacy features on on Android 12, you'll be able to uh, you know, not be tracked. It's bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, but it's uh, both of these articles now I, I just retweeted. And it's interesting to see how the headlines, this is from The Verge and Gadgets and others, <clears throat> um, and, and the lack of some of the big journalists to even cover this. Uh, so from The Verge, it says Google, the headline is Google reportedly made it difficult for smartphone users to find privacy settings. From a gadget, Google reportedly made it harder to find Android privacy settings. They all have nearly the identical, reportedly, 
not yeah. not using Tyler, you, court documents. Do yeah. Do you think it's because they're get they're gonna they reckon their scoops are gonna be limited? Correct. They, well, that, they go... yeah, they they clearly have a conflict of interest. Yes. Yeah. And and that's I mean, that's why you're not even seeing the bigger tech publications even touching this. And when The Verge and, and Gadget and the few that are covering it, they are clearly distancing themselves from accusing yeah. Google of anything by saying Google reportedly made it harder. Well, there's court documents that show the internal emails. This isn't reportedly. Google yeah, did make is... it harder. There's there's actual proof. <laughs> there's internal conversations of the employees saying, oh, this is a problem. The, the users are no longer turning off their, um, the, you know, <laughs> They're tracking. So this is this is a Star Wars one, right? Remember in Star Wars, these aren't the droids. These yeah, are not exactly. The droids yeah. <laughs> move along now, please. These yes, are not the droids. Nothing to for. see here. Uh, let's just bury this news and move on uh, because this is core to Google's business. Um, I'm surprised Apple isn't taking a stronger position. It's probably because they are still slightly guilty themselves in some way. Of they don't want to draw attention to themselves on this issue either. Ultimately. Since um, we're moving away from cookies as yes. tracking, yeah. what's the new mechanism for tracking? Flock. Google uh, calls it Federation of Cohorts. And what that means is, and it's a, by the way, this is a complete disinformation campaign in itself, ultimately. And we need to get a real expert in here to really expose it, which is, and some have, and they've taken to Twitter to say exactly what I'm now going to tell you, which is Google saying, ah, We've got this new system. It doesn't identify you personally. It puts you as part of a group of other, uh, you know, 35-year-old uh, Irish guys in Dublin who may or may not drink too much on Friday night. And that's your, that's your group, right? It's called a cohort. And you are, this, these are federations of cohorts, but we no longer have a unique identifier to Dave McGinty, right? And but it turns out Google is just, this is just a, a game because Google, due to all of the Wi-Fi that they have, you've heard of Google Wi-Fi due to your they've have five other ways to track you through Chrome browser, through the other Google apps on your phone. And they have 10 ways to Friday to know exactly who you are even without using the traditional cookie. However, they do want to kill the cookie because now that limits Facebook's ability to track you. So they're, they don't need the cookie anymore. They have so many other ways to track you. So they're now removing the way that their competitors track you because they have their own ways to track you and looking magnanimous in the process of saying, hey, guess what, everybody? We're not going to use these evil cookies anymore. Aren't we the good guys? No, <laughs> you're just killing off your competitors to, who are dependent <laughs> on that cookie because you've got other genius ways to track these individuals just as effectively, if not more so. So it's um, it's a bit no, of a head. Like, you had a certain amount of control over cookies locally. You, you're going to have less of that with Flock. Right. So for the individual user, you actually have less control now. Right. Can I add something to that, uh, Tyler? This yes. is Michelle speaking. Yeah, go ahead, Michelle. Uh, I just want to add that, well, Google actually worked with all their competitors across the industry to find alternative solutions. Yes. So and Apple hasn't really been um, showing the same collaborative behavior when they roll out um, iOS 14.5. Just wanted to add that. So Google... I mean, Facebook found another solution and it was approved by Google and yeah. they've been working together. So, And I, I imagine that will be mentioned in some sense in the upcoming event uh, this week on Wednesday, yeah? The F8? Um, it's already rolled out, but I think it hasn't been uh, widely 
announced, but all the ad industry players or advertisers are moving towards that solution. It's technically sending data directly from server to server yep. and um, with consent, obviously. Yep. But it, it wasn't broadly spoken about. Right. So today being Monday, and happy Monday, everybody. On Wednesday, it happens to be Facebook's biggest annual event of the year called F8. And it's a truly fantastic event where each year Mark Zuckerberg jumps up on stage, gives a keynote about what Facebook's been up to for the past year, what they're doing today, and where they, more more interestingly, he always reveals where they're going. And and he's has a great record of following up, uh, you know, Elon Musk often gets correctly accused of, you know, not being accurate with his timelines and, uh, you know, uh, daydreaming a bit and fantasizing a bit, you know, and... Zuck is a different beast. He says, "We're here's what we're going to do. <laughs> and, and they're already halfway to doing it. And they're just letting everyone know, here's where we're going for the next 12, 24 months. And so we're going to see what Facebook has in store for the next year or two on Wednesday when Mark Zuckerberg and other senior Facebook executives jump on stage and share uh, at the, as they do at this annual event. So please, we are going to have, by the way, that, that live stream event happens with this event at the, near at the same time. So we're going to be here doing the news until the live stream starts. We really hope Michelle joins us because Cal and I and everyone on stage really appreciate Michelle joining us each day to really give us important context around some of our conspiracy theories. And, <laughs> and um, she brings a stand to earth. She brings yeah. a stand to earth sometimes, which yeah. is nice. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. And, um, It'll be particularly fantastic on Wednesday uh, when we watch uh, the, the the keynote. Um, and it's fun to see what Facebook has in store. And here's a couple of things we're expecting them to talk about. As we were just saying, the, the whole new ability around d- uh, data, around users, and how that's used as part of their advertising network, which is their, their core, core business is, you know, as, as a, one of the world's biggest digital advertising networks. You could say Google and Facebook are the two biggest ad networks. And... So I imagine they'll touch on that, but that isn't really the star of the show by any stretch. I think the star of the show is going to be the future of social commerce, of empowering uh, Facebook users and creators more specifically to monetize um, and match with brands and partners to monetize. And we know this because even Zuck uh, said so on his own Facebook post a few days ago, and he doesn't post that often so when he does and when he's talking about that i think that's a good indication of what's to come and i imagine vr will be mentioned because zuck is a a huge fan of the of the vr platform and each year for the past few years this has come up in fact they even gave away a few years ago every person in attendance in the audience we're talking thousands of people all got the oculus headset under their seat that year and I, that was the year I wasn't able to go god damn it so um <laughs> the, the, uh, I but this this year is particularly interesting because five days after Facebook's event which is just two days away Apple has their big annual event and it is known Apple is going to talk about VR at their event and Facebook knows that Mark Zuckerberg knows Apple five days after their event is going to be talking all about AR and VR in a huge, beautiful, shiny, $50 million Hollywood blockbuster way and a huge, making a huge splash about this. So it's his opportunity to have five days earlier 
kind of steal the show by potentially giving some exciting glimpses of what's to come in, in the Oculus platform, etc. And um, it'll be interesting to see. So we hope yeah. you, you join us for that. You and, can, and you Tyler, can, the, yeah. the, the, the interesting like parallel thread that we've been talking about in this room for quite a while now is the um, social commerce. And yeah. I put up a tweet on that Forbes did that was no surprise to you and the rest of the team, right, on Shopify. But um, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to track the progress of Shopify as those two events land this week. I tw- less than twelve hours ago, uh, a friend of mine was using TikTok and, sh- and in, here in Thailand and showed me on TikTok the new social shopping in TikTok, where it's a uh, these you know people dancing and talk TikTok as they do, and now the clothes uh, and this was a particularly uh, celebrity dancing uh, group like a K-pop group was doing a dance video in, in, in TikTok. And now the items in the video, the clothes, the shirts that the girls were wearing, it was like five girls dancing together in a K-pop group style. The shirts they were wearing were now clickable and purchasable. The, the skirts they were wearing were clickable and purchasable. The shoes they were wearing were all clickable and purchasable in real time without leaving TikTok. It was quite wild. Uh, just to give you a glimpse as to what's what's Very coming. cool. Yeah, super cool. Um more headlines to share here. Um, uh, Faraz just sent one that I'm retweeting. Abu Dhabi invests uh, half a billion dollars in IVC Evidencia. What what is Evidencia? IVC Evidencia for us. Large, the largest, largest veteran, veter, veterinary largest care. Largest veterinary care provider. Interesting. Which now that medtech is exploding um, and becoming incredibly competitive, we just announced last week. Not only Google and now Amazon is doubling down and J.P. Morgan Chase is getting into the game. So MedTech is already getting very competitive amongst this, the big, big, big players. And so now you're seeing more people picking um, other parts of the tree like vet, veterinary care, med, uh, uh, psycho, psycho, psychology, uh, or what am I referring to, um, uh, mental health care and other niche aspects of healthcare. Are, are kind of the new new low hanging fruit there, and um, ah yeah, Faraz found a fantastic article which is true. Uh, Thailand's major um, wealthiest uh, family, the the CP group as they're called, and they control the the fish uh, industry, the chicken industry. They own all the Starbucks, they own all the Seven Elevens, which if you can't imagine how impactful the Seven Elevens are to the Thai economy, actually. Uh, anyway, so Thailand's CP Foods closes poultry factory after coronavirus found the company's poultry processing plant uh, will be shut down. And thank God they're doing that. Um, Faraz also shared this uh, incredible article about the Lazada um, uh, person stepping down. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that. No. What is that one? Lazada, by the way, is the Amazon of Thailand. It's based out of Singapore. And, and until Thailand or Alibaba really come into Thailand, Lazada has done a fantastic job of becoming, in the short term, uh, the the Amazon of Thailand, where it works just like Amazon. For us, do you want to read it? For us, you can read it well. The Southeast um, Asia head of Alibaba, uh, who was uh, Lazada, stepped down. This is in uh, in relation to the our earlier article talks, Tyler and Cal, hmm. around a whole bunch of uh, major companies in Southeast Asia, specifically related to China having major step-downs of guys that have been with them for ages. Mm. 
Poppy just found a great one uh, from Ars Technica that we, we covered the solar winds hacking thing, how they got deep into the American government infrastructure, the, the Russian hackers through the solar winds hacks. And the article today from Ars Technica says the solar winds hackers aren't back because it was announced over last week at the end of last week that the solar winds hackers are back at it again and they're deep into the American infrastructure yet again. And the article headline here says the solar winds hackers aren't back. They never went away. It says the new phishing campaign is less an escalation than a regression to the mean. The Russian hackers who breached SolarWinds IT management software to compromise a slew of U.S. government agencies and businesses are back in the limelight. Microsoft said on Thursday last week, and we talked about it here, that the same spy group known as Nobelium has built out an aggressive phishing campaign since January of this year and ramped it up significantly this week, targeting roughly 3,000 individuals and more than 150 organizations in 24 countries. The revelation caused a stir, highlighting, as it did, Russia's ongoing and inter-inveterate uh, digital espionage campaigns. But it should be no shock at all. Russia in general and the SolarWinds hackers in particular have continued to spy even after the U.S. imposed regulatory sanctions in April and relative solar winds of phishing campaigns seem downright ordinary. And here's the quote. I don't think it's an escalation. I think it's business as usual, says John Heltquist, vice president of intelligence analysis at the security firm FireEye, which first discovered the solar winds intrusions. I don't think they're deterred, and I don't think they're likely to be deterred, <laughs> which brings up the question, what the hell are we going to do about these goddamn Russian hackers uh, causing headaches for, for the, U the U.S. and not not only the US by any means. Tyler, there's a there's a little story behind the story there that's 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 a triumph in rational thinking and news okay. reporting as far as I'm concerned. I have never heard a news headline or a news article in, uh, in recent times use the term regression to the mean. And mm. it just in terms of smoothing out the ups and downs and all the excitement we get about things and you know I've got bad backache so I'm going to the doctor and then my doctor my backache got better. That that is a that is a really important way of filtering what comes in, I think. And it's really interesting that and it's just fascinating and, and, and wonderful to see a news article actually use that term. Anyway, just a side, side thing. Hmm. It is what it is. Um, so here's... Tyler, let me know when, you're, when you want to move on to the next headline. I have a couple from, that I want you and Dan uh, to look at. Go ahead. So there's... Um, because I, I know Dan's the climate expert over here. Uh, and and there's, I, I tweeted something out on... Sand giving water. Yeah, I love this uh, one. I, I, I'm curious about it. Sorry. So I'd love to hear about what's going on there because um, I have no clue what it's talking about. Oh, just state it. Sorry, sorry, I interrupted it? you. State, state it. Um, it's every drop counts. New breathable sand tech could help water-stressed uh, economies. And the United Arab Emirates being the most water-stressed uh, um, economy in the world. Decentralized rainwater harvesting could contribute towards flexible resilient and energy efficient water supply infrastructure. Um, then there's CEO of Dake Fretzen, the company behind breathable and technology which converts low value desert aeolian sand into sustainable products. Water doesn't magically appear when we turn a tap. Behind the simple final interface lies a highly energy intensive network. Water and electricity often come to our homes across hundreds and sometimes thousands of kilometers from where they're sourced and generated. Da, 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 da. Um, and, and then this is essentially de decentralized rainwater harvesting, which 
to me as a layman looks like um, the sand catches water and they're taking the water out of the sand. Is this what it is then? Do you have any idea what this uh, is? That one, I, that one I don't know about. There's um, You're tagged on the it. Main, the main thing is desalinization technology. And, and by the way, Israel exports desalinated water, which I think is just amazing. They're so efficient at it. Um, there are also some cool technologies been around for a while, but people don't know about them where you just take water right out of the air, out of the moisture, out of the air. Uh, it's usually not high volumes. It's like drinking water. You can get that way. Um, and there are other techniques about getting, you know, different ways to get it out of the air. I, I don't know the particular one though that you're talking about there. Right. So this one's basically what, what my understanding is, it's basically doing the same thing. We're keeping water from sand in the desert, in silos outside in the desert, instead of transporting it directly and then desalinizing it. And this is apparently sand tech. And, and the article has been tweeted to uh, the official tech news channel, Tyler Yusuf and Dan. I'm looking for it. I'll find it. You... I'll look for it too. Um, but yeah, it, it, it is. You want to do eco news? Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Or... Yeah. So I got, I'll just say the headlines for three, and then if anybody wants to hear more about it, we can talk about it. Um, as banks shun coal, Vietnam emerges as an unlikely solar champion. I thought that was appropriate for what you were talking about recently about uh, Vietnam. And it talks about, by the way, the kind of a mind-blowing thing, a 100-fold increase in solar in the last two years. <laughs> How's that for an increase? That's pretty something. Okay, next headline. Big tech drawn to new Singapore carbon offset trading market. This is a SGX-backed platform in talks with Google, Microsoft, and Amazon. It's a platform for allowing uh, big tech companies to buy a verified uh, carbon offset so that they don't have to spend their own time checking each and every you know uh, person that's offering a carbon offset. And by the way, there's different levels of car carbon offset. The, the old ones like planting trees, which are pretty cheap and also not very effective. And the new, the newer ones like actually sucking a ton of carbon out of the air and putting it underground. Those are much more expensive. So that's a market in Singapore taking off. That's, that's kind of cool. And um, this one, I, this is kind of exciting. No new coal plants in Indonesia in another bid to cut emissions. Indonesia won't approve any new coal-fired power plants as it steps up its effort to reduce carbon emissions. The government will only allow the completion of plants that are already under construction or have reached their financial close, et cetera, said, so-and-so said. Um, this is the move, latest move by Indonesia, the world's top exporter of thermal coal. <laughs> so uh, they're reducing it locally. This is the same problem that uh, you know, Australia has. They're exporting their emissions. Um, anyways, and while, while, just, just a quick interruption. While you yeah, guys are looking for it, there's another one. There's another one I sent you for Brazil. Ninety-one percent water. Um, hang on. Uh, it says Brazil's worst water crisis in ninety-one years threatens power supplies. That's a Bloomberg article. I, I just retweeted your water harvesting one. For those who right, are, so want to find it in the Santec. I, I didn't think Santec would exist. It's just amazing. I can get back later and what, what I think about it, but I can't do it like real time here without reading it. So, yep. uh, anyway, if anybody wants more about those three, but those are just kind of high level, kind of interesting uh, things happening. Yep. There's also a lot, a, a lot being written about this Exxon, Chevron, and Shell uh, things that happened a few days ago, where the court ruling and the two shareholder rulings. 
that are really stirring things up in the oil industry that, in, in a good way. Right. So that's it for now. I'll, I'll take a look at this water there, thing. There's a new headline today that Amazon devices will soon automatically share your internet with your neighbors. Amazon's experiment wireless mesh network turns users into guinea pigs is the headline. If you use Alexa, Echo, or any other Amazon device, you have only 10 days to opt out of an experiment that leaves your personal privacy and security hanging in the balance. On June 8th, uh, the merchant, web host, and entertainment behemoth, Amazon, will automatically enroll devices in what's called Amazon Sidewalk. The new wireless mesh service will share a small slice of your internet bandwidth with nearby neighbors who don't have connectivity and help you to their bandwidth when you don't have a connection. By It says digital socialism, apparently. <laughs> uh, and by the way, I, I already signed, opted out of that a while ago, but you know, anyone has a Comcast modem at your home, mm -hmm. you're already doing that in a big way. That's what the Xfinity, uh, uh, Xfinity Wi-Fi that's everywhere, that's, that's because everyone's home is unintentionally sharing their band. They actually say they don't actually take the bandwidth they're selling you, that they actually give you a little extra bandwidth and that's what they're sharing. Yeah, but that, a, that same a, exact thing is happening with Comcast and Xfinity. Yeah, there's a theme going on here, right? With Google and Amazon, you know, for companies that like applaud customer testing and the customer is right and, you know, we're going to do testing and AB and blah, blah, blah. They're really just pushing features in their own interest. I'm just like, saying it straight from my perspective well, anyway the insidious part of this David, is the fact that it's constantly opt out like we've had this with the whole um amazon thing with the ring cameras as well and and sharing the data potentially in the u.s and it's always opt out as opposed to opt in which obviously works in their benefit that's the intelligent thing well, to do from a marketing perspective but it's the insidious part and and actually in the uk um sky and bt also do this uh wi-fi sharing thing as but well I, the weird part about the ring was, and I say this because Jamie Simonoff, the CEO founder, I considered a very dear friend. We used to do Saturdays in his backyard barbecue for many months uh, before he even founded Ring because um, he lived down the street from me in Santa Monica. He's actually in Pacific Palisades, but technically. Anyway, um, Ring was, it brings me no pleasure to say this about Jamie's company Ring, but they it was reported and revealed that they secretly... It's now been more, uh, they've had to be very uh, engineer a different solution here, but they were s sharing the camera data with police stations without anybody knowing. And then it, became, it was revealed that, in fact, the police stations uh, are able to tap into everybody's ring devices. And when journalists found out about this, they had to come up with, and they made it actually a feature that the users, you know, got them, <laughs> said, oh, we're going to let, uh, the police in your neighborhood have access to this is a great thing, isn't it? And, you know, kind of a head fake uh, PR move uh, that apparently they now let you opt out of in some capacity because they found out that when they positioned it as a as a feature and not a bug, that many people were happy to leave it on or the majority were. So it's now become more conscious, but it was rather sinister that uh, they were doing it prior to any until journalists exposed it. That this highlights a really fundamental thing with IoT going forward. I'm a huge fan of, of, of but, but, messing around and putting chips into everything. But with your phone, you have the, the permissions. It pops up with an update and it says, hey, this would need this new permission. We don't have that with IoT yet. There's by, no mechanism in place to ask for that. It's just automatic. 
And this yeah. needs to change going forward. But by the way, the sinister element of this camera sharing scheme with the police was that this was a deal they did with the police stations in exchange for the police promoting Ring to their neighborhoods, saying this is a fantastic system you should all be using <laughs> because it gave them access. That was the crazy bit. Susie on... And this ties in with a whole neighborhood fear thing as well that in a lot of communities in the U.S., yeah. That sort of uh, Tyler, you know, did this happen? This is Lolle. This Hi. did this happen in US, you said? Correct. Interesting. Hey Tyler. Yes. Um I have a I was reading up a little bit more about that. Um <clears throat> the um technology uh regarding decentralized rainwater harvesting. Okay. Um, so I wanted to read this for you if you were still interested. And I think I heard Cal say he was interested. Um, <clears throat> so what it says is that tiles and curbstones manufactured using this technology by a company called Dake um, Resh Sand um, uh, results in hydrophobic surfaces, ensuring that every drop of precious precipitation can be directed toward reservoirs and harvested. Reservoirs built using the same material can store water, keeping it fresh for up to seven years without chemicals and electricity-driven aeration. The second capability all, um, allows underground water storage beneath any public or private area, eliminating the need for land, especially allocated for reservoirs. So I guess the idea is, is that the technology is actually going to be built into the cities, and then all the rainwater is actually kept underground. Mm. Yeah, so I, I read entire... this. I read this too, but I think it's really just a press release. I mean, there's nothing. It, what it's saying is that instead of having large centralized reservoirs with long transmissions of the water to you know local cities, it's better to build lots of little reservoirs. Okay, that's great. Uh, nothing super special about that, but that's a good thing to do. And then this particular company is selling hydrophobic. Just means it holds water, right? I mean, like any any. Plastic holds water. A lot of things hold water. And they just have this kind of building so material then, they just, want just you to build FYI, your, your then just water FYI, and water storage things out of. Go ahead. If you allow me to speak just there. Um, Zabia, which is a renowned uh, publisher for the of news for the United Arab Emirates, doesn't publish these sorts of things. Um, they publish it when it's been actually observed by the United Arab Emirates and has been approved or is being looked at specifically to be put in. Um, and if you're aware of the United Arab Emirates and you know that it's currently, with due respect to all nations, is currently at the leading cusp of technology in the world. So with due respect to your, to your experience, I think you need to do a little bit more research before making comments like, this is just a press release. Thank you very much and well, I'm done. Okay, well, I'm not saying it's not something that's important. I mean, building <laughs> distributed reservoirs is great. It just doesn't seem to be a brand new, like, uh, no, but kindly, you know, brand I new understand technology that. that has not been. I understand that, but before. why? If, if it was such a, if it was such a technology, then I'm, I'm sorry. You, why? You're the specialist on stage. I, I didn't see you talking about it. I don't follow you there, but okay. <laughs> uh, it's very clear what I'm saying. I'm speaking English. I, I found something. Uh, there's lots of technologies I don't talk about, of course, and there's and you know you're always talking very about problems. Why not? Why not give a solution? Well, he's uh, an investor, would, more of an investor than an entrepreneur. But uh, yeah, well, he does share a, a, a fair bit of solutions here. Solution news: the this Amazon uh, Wi-Fi sharing thing that I was discussing a minute ago. The 
I found an interesting point here in this article, kind of the, the golden nugget in this article is that by default, the Amazon devices include everything that they touch, which include Alexa, their Echo and the Ring cameras and outdoor lights and motion sensors and even the tile trackers that they recently acquired will all enroll in this system. And since only a tiny fraction of people take the time to change the default settings, that means millions of people will go, will be co-opted into the program, whether they know anything about it or not. The Amazon webpage linked above says, Sidewalk is currently only available in the US. Uh, and I am sharing that from the Tech News Twitter account uh, so that anyone can, oh, actually we already tweeted it. It was from Poppy and I retweeted that. And I retweeted your article, uh, Faraz, about the, uh, uh, every drop counts of uh, the new sand tech water stress solution. Uh, and you're right, we do definitely need to focus on solutions uh, to very real problems, especially due to water is going to continue to be an ever bigger problem. Um, so thank you for sharing that one. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, yeah. What can somebody on stage have something to share? Maybe if we I met... have something smaller, go I ahead. Have... Yeah. Akil jumped in first, and then who was after that? Me, Ranjit. Okay, Ranjit. So we'll go. Wait, okay. let, let Ranjit go. I, okay, I Ranjit. What do you got? Thanks, Akil. Uh, so I have some very interesting news about what's happening about clubhouse in India. Okay. Uh, so uh, it's been almost a week, and during the weekend, it was kind of quite crazy uh, happening in clubhouse, uh, especially from the south part where. I come from near to Bangalore. Uh, so this state which I come from is hardly 30 million people. And interestingly, during the weekend, most of the politicians, film stars, media came online in Clubhouse. And there has been same topic, but multiple rooms. The most interesting factor is that media channels, what they did was that they have a discussion, the usual uh, 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. discussion in TV. And after that, they were conducting an extended discussion in Clubhouse with thousands of people. And most of these rooms were like around 1,500 to 2,000 people at 12 o'clock in the night. Uh, and uh, most of these rooms were in the local language. And the topics were, in, I mean, the titles, everything was in the uh, local language. There has been some interesting discussions going on, topics related to films, politics, startups, uh, some one I found one interesting uh, group in which I don't know maybe they didn't understand about what is closed room and open room, how to trade drugs. That was one interesting room I found out in the local language. Uh, there has been one tech room in which they were discussing about since there's a lockdown and all the schools are closed and it's online happening through Zoom. Can we conduct these classes in, in Clubhouse? Because you can create a room for a class, uh, about 50, 50 kids, and can the teacher conduct this class in uh, Clubhouse? Uh, there was a couple of uh, prominent personalities told that they could get 25,000 followers in just one day. Uh, and most interestingly, by end of yesterday evening, by around 10 o'clock in the night, there was a lot of uh, traffic problems in Clubhouse. I don't, I don't say that it is because India came online, but uh, I don't know. Uh, multiple people were complaining uh, about that. Is so, Miss Is Miss Lord, Is Miss Melania come on yet? 
I haven't seen it. It's uh, Malini uh, Tyler. Yeah, if she yeah, comes, if she comes on, tell her I want. I'll, I'm here, and we sh- she can come in tech news, and that would be. She's a oh, she's a friend, so we will we'll talk about tech. She loves. Tech, I have something super interesting. By okay, the but thank you for that update, Ranjit. It's it's curious yeah. to see uh, what's going to happen with India here in in Clubhouse, especially if people start making rooms that are anti Modi. <laughs> oh my God, what would yeah. happen? Yeah, go ahead. There has been a lot. Uh, uh-huh. There was one uh, point in, in the in the uh, in their uh, town hall meeting they told about, which is can be connected. Like they told about having this transcription text uh, in the future uh, on the coming days, um, not in the future. Yeah. I think they are working on it, so that is going to be interesting. Thanks for that. So, which means all all the audio is going to be text soon. Mm-hmm. So, which also tells our conspiracy that uh, are they storing the audio. Well, it means also that the government can start looking for the yeah. word Modi and keywords that they want to filter for. And so that's where the text transcription can be a gateway yeah. to a problem. Yeah. What's up, Akil? We've got 19,500 languages. We'll beat them. But it will uh, also make the um, app some interesting news. What's the news, Akil? Uh, Google-backed company is working on the next autonomous vehicles, airplanes. Autonomous airplanes? Yep. Yeah, we call uh, those drones. Fully... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh... It made him laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler, I do have some breaking yeah, no, news. Uh... Okay, hold on, David. What's going on? China just passed, well, hasn't passed yet, but is going to uh-huh. announce very soon a uh-huh. three-child policy. Oh. oh. Wow. That is breaking news. And this has not been reported by anyone yet, has it? It, it has. It has. Oh. Uh, I, I sent you the South China Morning Post article. Okay. Let me uh, retweet it. One second. Let's find that. Uh, where is that, David? Let's see here. So I can retweet it out to everybody. Uh, here it is. South China Morning Post. China to introduce... South, uh, three child policy to cope with aging population. Let's let's dig into this. Um, China's to introduce three child policy to cope with aging population decision announced after Communist Party meeting, uh, supporting measures to be introduced to allow each couple to have three children. China will allow each couple to have three children in a major policy overhaul to address the challenges of its aging population. The decision was announced after a Communist Party Bureau meeting chaired by President Xi on Monday. I imagine um, if they don't get the results they're looking for, it might become mandatory or highly incentivized in the short term. That, that they, uh, Where's Leon? Yes, is the question. Well, it, there's uh, he's maybe he's having kids at the moment. The uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the breaking news we all need. But uh, David, I have a question. But uh, infrastructure-wise, remember that there is uh, recently you were announcing about the uh, census, right? You are saying that uh, the kids cannot go to the city with the parents who are working because they are not able to find schools because of the rule call, right? So is uh, this also part of the change? I don't think that will be part of the change quite mm-hmm. yet, but they are making it slightly easier for children to get uh, access to better schooling. So the current uh, census data shows China is at 62% urbanized population and uh, 38% non-urban. The goal is to eventually reach 75% urban population. Um, so there, uh, there is talk 
uh, right now, uh, especially in the conferences I've been invited to attend, to change uh, the current economic structure, which is a binary structure in that uh, if you live in a rural area, you can own land and uh, you work as farmers right? or, or tenant farmers. And then uh, if you live in urban areas, you work in factories, companies, whatever, um, and you're not allowed to own the land that you live on. Um, it's a 70-year usage policy. But they're trying to change the uh, – there's talks, um, which I, I really can't share yet, um, on, on how to restructure that in order to cope with the uh, incoming urbanizing population. Uh, you David, what about David? What about property tax? Any development in that area in China? Uh, property taxes for now are still sort of limited uh, to different cities and provinces. Um, so, taxes in property taxes for the most part is still transactional, and so holding costs are very low. Um, but it would not surprise me if there are going to be higher holding taxes coming out in cities like Beijing and Shanghai to curb some of the speculation um, as these cities have 15 to 16 percent uh, vacancy rates in a lot of the properties. Tyler, I have a little news also from uh, Japan related to population as well. Okay. More parents in Japan try matchmaking for adults' kids as number of <laughs> married increases. Okay, that's all for the highline. And okay, but nice. how, rest, yeah, you can imagine. <laughs> well, how? Tomoko, you have any comments? You're flashing like it's, it's an app, a special app for parents to use. No, to get, I to... think they are physically doing what the Chinese parents are doing, helping their kids to do matchmaking. Yes, because younger kids, well, <laughs> younger adults are adults. Yeah, they are still too shy to meet meet uh, the opposite sex for the marriage or even for dating. So the, the parents are so worried about their kids. So they yeah. decided to much making. Yeah. I'm sure. Okay, but yeah. here's... Yeah. Tyler, when you're here, you also go for a lot of Gokong, right? Gokong here, Omiya, here's know. my question. So <laughs> I have a very simple question. How are they matchmaking their kids? <laughs> Tyler, I can answer that in the Chinese sense. I know, uh, I know I exactly up. how China does it. Well, I'm asking in the Japanese context. Oh. Is it? An, uh, here's a question: Is it an app or not? It's not exactly app, uh, as far as I I know. Okay. Are they meeting um, in Yoyogi Park on Sunday uh, near near the swap meet, and then everyone brings their oh, kids? Or they bring the photos of their kids? <laughs> okay, let me read this. In Japan, okay. there's a What's practice called umiyai, where a man and a woman meet for the first time on the premise they may get married. Sometimes it is just the two of them, and sometimes their parents are there too. In recent years, however, there are there have been more proxy umiyai events where the parents meet without their child children's presence. So I guess it's a very similar approach as that's the Chinese, the Chinese style. Yeah. <laughs> Well, desperate times call for desperate measures. Um, <laughs> otherwise, you can have a robot child. And um, if... uh, can we can we get done with my news just for closure purposes? What what was it, Akil? Uh, it was the Google-backed companies work on working on the next autonomous vehicles, airplanes, because they're doing some incredible stuff. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So. 
this company apparently is not focused on um, autonomous flying but their focus at the automation of uh, the gears and the control panel in the aircraft um and these guys have done multiple uh, autonomous missions on multiple types of aircraft um and uh, apparently they have announced the 55 aircraft partnership with dynamic aviation the owner of the world's largest private king air fleet and did you tweet this from the twitter account yep yep i tweeted it out okay i'll i'll find that and retweet that thank you for that one um let's see if i can find that we can't afford the chinese yeah and here's um uh, uh, many people like uh, kuram and poppy are sharing articles about the the chinese kind of a follow up to david's article about china couples allowed to have three children this is very big news in china today is it not david i imagine every publication is announcing this it's kind of a huge hotels are fully booked tonight <laughs> love hotel you me <laughs> there's also a lot of from my yeah um slightly probably dated um context but david you it's there's kind of a lot of nuance in here right so a lot of people do get away with you know what whatever the rules you know it, it, the rules apply to some people in some ways in cities and and then wealth also plays a role here and um it, it's just it, you know it I used to always get the you know the 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 pushback from people in China and say hey we have one child policy but hang on it's you know many, many people have two children or three children so it's nuanced right uh obviously yeah, I was gonna, I was going to ask is there any link to the social credit score or any um possible derived link uh well so at the height of the enforcement of the uh one child policy there was obviously no social credit score system yet um so there are actually regions in china where because the cultural element is run so deep that it, it's funny even for us when we go see see these things um it, it's almost standard that people in the south of fujian province and northern guangdong province um that that area so these two provinces are connected right so that the areas where they're connected um that entire subset of uh culture they 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 just A they love sons and then B they just have big families. So having four children in that part of China even at the height of the of the one child policy was not unusual. And for a lot of families um in very labor intensive parts of the country that really require farm hands um there's oftentimes a blind eye being turned towards uh the strict enforcement of the one child policy. but for the most part obviously it has been um and again this is not a value judgment when i say successful but as a as a as a means of carrying out a policy has been very successfully carried out and and because it's so successful that's why china is having this massive aging population problem mm. which cohort of the population do you think are they're targeting most david uh in terms of keeping down to one child policy no, the, back the, the, the uptick to 3 the uptick to th- no so everyone is allowed to have three children now so yeah, uh, sorry i misunderstood the question i think so like the the rate of it is there's so there's a policy that goes out it's but it's unequally implemented but then there is those that it would be in china's interests to have an uptick in the people there i the country wants to act in its own interest or I don't know manufacturing stuff or more farmhands so do you think that there's like a 
layer two under this, where there's going to be more direct incentivization. Right. Or oh, you mean for particular people? subsets of people, right? Yeah, yeah. Like when a man distributes goods, he rarely forgets himself. Um, I think I think the, the obviously the, the main focus will be urban population, uh, because as the country's goal is to urbanize, um, that that's certainly where people, where, where the government wants to focus on, um, because part of part of the new economic plan that I've been sitting on in these conferences is they want to increase domestic consumerism, as they see that's the main driving force for the economy going forward, um, and to transition hopefully slowly out of this heavy dependence on export, as exports still account for 35% of China's current GDP. What would be interesting to see is if there's an application process and if, if China has the ability to track names and individuals and somehow combine this with some form of genetics to try and figure out what kind of population is going to arise. I'm, I'm just thinking out at, loud. Yeah, but at this point, X-Files music in my yeah, head. But at this point, they're not going to be picky. They're desperate for bodies, period. So once they get to a point where they can be picky and say, ah, you should have children and you shouldn't, that's a luxury problem they don't have at the moment. <clears throat> well, I also think it's going to be tricky because I would imagine that most of the people who are of childbearing age grew up as only children. So, you know, there's a certain psyche that goes along with that. And I can't imagine people that grew up as only children thinking, I can't wait to have three, <laughs> you know, <laughs> three children. I think David is their education and, you David know, is the only child, you know, I think. Everything else that goes Lakeisha, you're totally right. And um, I mean, I, I, yes, I'm an only child, but my parents didn't have the one-child policy problem. Anyway, but, <laughs> apart from my family. Um, so, so how many do you want, David? Because there were exceptions, right? Like, sorry, sorry, one second. Because, because there are exceptions. Right? Anyway, keep going. Um, how many can you afford, David? Cal, I, I'm neither going to agree or deny or anything. You on, on, the level, on the level of Guanxi that you have. On the level of Guanxi that you have. And, and so, um, I, I I think what part of the problem now that we see a lot in the urban rhetoric in China is most families in urban settings simply cannot afford to have more than one child because of how expensive it is now to live in urban centers. So part of the narrative that we're seeing right now is how how the government can encourage urban population to have multiple children or i mean the 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 two child policy uh came out in 2014 as a pilot and went into full swing in 2016 but even that hasn't been very effective so tyler is totally right that the government has sort of given up as to how to coordinate uh who should have multiple children which subset at this point it's just pump out as many bodies as possible so we're not gonna face this deeply deeply problematic population crisis issue, which by current figures that by 2025, China's 60 and over will reach over 20% of the population. But, but David, is, yeah. is there any inbound interest in immigration? I mean, some countries have incredibly long waiting lists of people who would love to immigrate there. Uh, does, does China have that luxury? So this is the biggest irony. While Chinese citizens are dying to get foreign citizenship, not, not all of them, but you know, a great number of them, um, the Chinese citizenship is probably the hardest thing to get. Um, and, and I say this because I personally have staff 
who are going through the exact same thing, and we're dealing with immigration on this. So they're overseas Chinese, um, second-generation Chinese, many of them from the States. Um, the parents have given up. Uh, so so the, the parents went to the States for, for graduate school. They've given up their Chinese citizenship. So when the children were born, they had U.S. citizenship by birth. But now that they're coming back to work in China and they're trying to gain Chinese citizenship, it's the hardest thing. It's nearly impossible. And the only thing that they can realistically hope to get is the effective uh, Chinese version of a green card. So immigration, even for someone of Chinese descent whose parents are former Chinese nationals, is nearly impossible. What about well, let me, let me add Joanne, can I ask like, a question? Sorry. Ladies uh, this first. is Joanne. Yeah, Joanne. I was just Welcome back. going to ask, are the Chinese government going to provide like any kind of tax relief or support for individuals? Going on your point about how expensive it is to have multiple children. They will know in about two months when they see the pregnancy rates, uh, uh, the, the, the birth. I, I, no doubt. I, this is, first of all, let's recognize, how, David, how many days ago was it when China announced the birth rate data, the birth rate decline data? It was about Two weeks ago, yeah, yeah, like a, at most a month ago when the right. census twenty twenty. So came two out. weeks ago, China announced we have a, a declining birth rate. Two weeks later, they have a new national policy to encourage children that just and I, you have to stop and admire a country of that size being able to move that fast. Okay, now you can also be assured they are watching the sales of pregnancy tests. And based on the number of pregnancy tests sold at every store in China, they can then make a calculation if they actually need to incentivize people to have kids with tax breaks or financial stimulus or pay pay to pay to have kids, you know, plans. If there's not enough uh, birth uh, test being sold in in the Seven Elevens, then you'll see that in two months from now. My thought I can uh, I can answer I can answer Joanne's question. Okay, go ahead. I may. Yes, Ben. So Joanne, that's literally what I was going to add. Uh, this very perceptive question. China not only announced the three child policy, but it has um, a what's called associated uh, policy or incentives um, to push that particular policy. For instance, uh, well, as we learned from the uh, um, Democrat, Demo, well, the data that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. There are different birth rates in, amongst different provinces uh, in the 30 provinces. For example, in Liaoning, Hubei, and uh, some other uh, states or provinces, there are additional incentives, uh, as in extended uh, uh, maternity leave and additional birth, uh, what is called, uh, additional birth money, if you will. Got it. Uh, and then in another in another province called uh, Shanxi, we don't need the uh, details. They will do a, we don't need. Yeah, to, they will do yeah, We don't need to know which province is doing what. We well. get. We got the point. Different provinces do yeah. different plans. That's great. So on the. I'm By the way, you got you got it. There's another story. You guys miss it. Very related. This is CNN. I guess last week. Go ahead. Divorces fall seventy percent in China after government orders couples to cool off. According to uh, the number of divorces recorded in China has fallen more than 70% since the introduction of a mandatory cooling off period earlier this year. Anyway, that's there's more to it. Due to COVID, I guess? We get the idea. No, no. It's a, uh, no, it's a they, they stop, stop divorces. You have to, you can't just get divorced. You have to have a cooling off period. And you, ah. uh, 
and they and they're yeah. doing that because of the declining. If people are divorcing, then they're not. Yeah, they want. Kids. It's all part of the same thing, right? They right. But if you're in a unhappy marriage, view, even good, if they're not the divorced, you're not going to have kids, Tyler. Well, yeah, there's so there's they, a more important social element to that, which is children born out of wedlock have very have difficulty obtaining a huko, meaning they will have obtaining they'll have difficulty getting into schools and enjoying social benefits. So that's the biggest problem with the wedding institution in China. Just a quick one on the like incentivization of those who've got the greatest intelligence. So, like Ben, when the guys are getting money or like better paternity, is it um, incentivized according to the IQ and the genes of the parents? Who asked that question, Dave? Yeah, Beth. Yeah, uh, th- th- yeah the short answer is no. Uh, going back to Tyler, your question about immigration, um, actually, uh, China just started what's called the uh, green card for right. uh, okay. uh, Chinese We're... sort of uh, citizens, oh. former Chinese citizens. Okay, we're so going to move on because we lost, a, we lost 20% of the room since we started talking about China. So we're just going to move on. So the Virgin Hyperloop just released a video. If you've not seen Virgin Hyperloop, it's in the desert just north of Las Vegas. A long white metal tube sits at the base of the mountains. And and it's a very, it looks like a Disneyland ride. So I'm going to encourage folks who want to see what the future of transportation looks like. It's called Virgin Hyperloop. Um, And basically, they're working very hard. This is an Elon Musk project that's been years in the making. Um, and they now have a functional test track uh, near Las Vegas. And that this plan was to build from L.A. to Vegas because the government was going to spend ungodly amounts of money to build a high-speed train, which they have very difficult doing. So Virgin Hyperloop is trying to do that for much less cost and much more efficient, much better rates. Speaking of China, they're also planning to send three people up to their new space station. Um, so there'll be three less people in the, in the hotels this, over the next month or so. Um, but interesting that they're making progress on that. Um, Raman sent in some headlines about uh, U.S. regulators signal bigger role in the cryptocurrencies market. Leverage uh, says expert inside out. So here the headline is that Wall Street, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of Bitcoin headlines all happening simultaneously. Wall Street struggles to sell Washington on Bitcoin for the masses is the pub from pub, publico.com. And I think this is, might be the best article today on the topic, which is essentially that um, Bitcoin is the biggest of the virtual assets, which unlike the dollar are distributed outside the government control and often operate on a decentralized basis. The strong push by Wall Street, like Fidelity, these huge banks basically are now on board with Bitcoin and crypto to some extent in a controlled capacity. And they're being pushed back by Washington, D.C. And that's the new battlefront for the future of crypto and Bitcoin is the banks are in the major financial industry players are in for it and and they're getting pushed back by the regulators. So it says, uh, and I'll tweet this out in a second, a strong push by Wall Street to open up access to Bitcoin investment is meeting resistance from bipartisan group of lawmakers and regulators in Washington, setting up a lobbying fight over the future of crypto uh, of digital currency. Major financial industry players like Fidelity uh, and Skybridge Capital are pressing the SEC to approve their plans to launch funds on public stock markets that would let small investors tap into the rise of Bitcoin. Wall Street says it's getting in 
getting in the game and trying to launch so-called exchange-traded funds, ETFs, linked to cryptocurrency in response to surging demand with the market for Bitcoin alone exceeding $670 billion. Firms are pouring money into lobbying to shape regulation to convince skeptical policymakers that digital currency is viable for wider adoption for the masses. And the key line in that sentence is, Firms are pouring money into lobbying to shape reg regulations, <laughs> which means our government's for sale and our, our laws are for sale. And now the banks uh, are willing to pay. This is the interesting bit. Uh, those who don't understand how American politics work. The question is, will the banks be willing to pay enough to Washington, D.C. money grabbers to get them to legalize Bitcoin? That's what you need to read between the lines there. Let me read it for you again. Wall Street is now wants to get in on the game. They see a huge financial opportunity. So Wall Street uh, firms are pouring money into lobbying to shape regulation and to convince skeptical policymakers. How do you convince skeptical policymakers with money? How does that work? Is it not based on logic and facts? No, it's, it's based on lobbying, lobbying, which is money, which means will the banks, will Wall Street pay our politicians enough to make Bitcoin happen? Is Bitcoin that big of an opportunity for Wall Street that they would pay the government to make it happen? That's where we are now at in America. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Yes, go ahead. It's, it's not it's just corruption. Just one, one, one thing there. Um, so, of course, you know, for Wall Street, it's a major thing, especially if they're able to do the ETFs the way the way that they want to do the ETFs, the way that they've been done in Canada, etc. Um, and then the other thing is, sure, you know, they're lobbying, etc. But there's also something going on where, for example, some of the banks are now being given the ability to offer USDC um, at interest-bearing accounts. So there's also being some sort. There's also being. There's also some sort of fight back happening in terms of what usually, for example, crypto and non non-specialized crypto investors would do. Someone who's just holding and has no idea what to do with it. They would usually have their bank or their or, or someone who's who's trading for them short a call to make them a particular interest rate. They're now offering USDC as the digital currency of the United States with interest on it. And that's also another piece that should probably be looked at. Yeah, the, the probably a huge... Sorry, Tyler, go on. No, no, Sorry. go ahead, Carl. I was just going to say there's probably a huge amount of fear-mongering here as well. Like, they're, they're going to these guys and they're saying, look, we go way back. You know, you know, you know me, I know you. Um, we, we, we know how the game works. You know, better the devil that you know than the devil you don't. Look at the power that Bitcoin has, that the whole, uh, that, you know, and you can link the whole thing together. You can link Bitcoin with the meme economy, with GME, with AMC, and all of that thing. And you can say, look, do you really want the masses having this power? Do you want the masses having uh, the, this decentralized finance with zero control over it, where they can, where they don't have to come to the banks, they don't have to use um, inflationary fiat? So this, it's not just the lobbying with the money. It's, I imagine there's going to be a massive amount of fear mongering saying, yeah, you know, we don't always get on. Uh, but at least you know us and we abide by regulations that you set. The devil you know versus the one you don't, yeah? So um, Exactly. Wall, yeah, the one of the quotes from Senator Elizabeth Warren, one of the big folks on, on, the, on the left in the U.S., says, our country needs to take a deeper dive on how to deal with cryptocurrency before any regulations are put in, which means my staff is willing to take your checks whenever you got them so that we can do this deep dive 
uh, go ahead and send that check to elizabethwarren.com and uh, we will be happy to consider uh, <laughs> all of your points but before it, we make regulations. Yeah. This, this is funny because like you'll see on my Twitter, Elizabeth Warren interviewing uh, JP Morgan boss mm -hmm. and like gives him an absolute beating. You know, mm -hmm. you were basically like profiting off COVID. You know, are you going to give that money back? You know, X bank, Y bank, are you going to give that money back? She was really kick-ass in the interview, but I think your point on politics and money and persuasion is just so well made. Carl used the word insidious earlier. I'm going to say it again. Insidious, awesome word. Yeah, uh, but yeah, well, let's see how it shakes out. But it, it comes, Tyler, yes, go ahead, I may. I was just going to make a comment yeah. because this is super fascinating yeah. because what you're seeing is less of the Bitcoin narrative that I'm listening to you say and more of the concern of what's happening with DeFi. And ING wrote a DeFi white paper three weeks ago in Holland basically assessing the whole entire de decentralized finance system. You know, the Dutch love to research. They love to write these papers. But it was a really well thought out paper. And I think, to Carl's point and Dave's point, I'm kind of on their side as well. I think it's like going to a party and not having enough snacks or drink left over. And now everyone's showing up late. And now they're trying to deter people that have actually sort of been there for a while. And they're trying to fear monger. They're trying to get people to sort of, you know, lose their shit and, you know, start not wanting to do it, you know. And the thing is, is that underneath it all, having watched the big short again, you will start to see that there's a massive narrative at play here. And the decentralized finance is actually where the derivatives market is going to go. So when you start to see the securest blockchain, yes, Bitcoin is, but it's for wealth management. It's not for currency usage day to day. When you start seeing the fintech world, the fintech world is entering into DeFi. So while everyone's messing around and paying attention to the things going on with Bitcoin, decentralized finance and all those projects are moving very swiftly ahead and they're doing papers there. You know, it's it's in a lot of countries. You know, people could talk about regulation, which is already there. You know, everything's already starting to move towards decentralization. And I think like I think it was Carl said. The older, with all due respect, the white men in, in the financial Wall Street are getting nervous because it's been a big boys club and they've always had to like lobby and get all those elements. But now that's breaking up. And the challenge here is going forward for the future. How are we going to have a hand in crafting what it looks like? And do we dig our head in the sand as an ostrich? Or do we get and we get on the court and start playing basketball with them? And I think right now there's a lot of people that want to get on the court and start playing because there's not been a lot of transparency in that space for decades now. And I'm going to call it now, Tyler. Mm -hmm. There will probably be another mortgage crisis coming down because they're doing something Bang. in the United States. You know where they're doing it now, Tyler? No. Nope. They're doing it with the millennials. Mm. They're giving those mortgages to millennials to buy homes mm. and they're approving their homes, which is where now you're going to see a whole nother animal happening of what happened in 2008. If I could just add on to what I said, Tyler, just quickly, and I'll make it the last point mm. is I wouldn't be surprised if very soon you see banks doing the same thing in the United States with DeFi because the derivatives play is the important play for banks. And that added to what happened pre 2008 and this, is, this comes back to an earlier discussion we had in this room where, I, where myself and I think it was Kieran who, who said that two years from today, you're probably going to be looking at a crisis much worse than what was seen in 2008 because now you've got traditional financial markets doing the same thing and you've got alternative capital markets that were supposed to be a hedge 
or a store of value or something else doing the same exact thing by the same exact players. I'm done speaking. Mm. Nalormi sent in an update on this story we started last week about China's um, emotion detection cameras that are being used on Uyghurs. And now that story is gaining more traction. Uh, human rights advocates say they are shocked after the investigation revealed Chinese authorities are using Orwellian camera systems on Uyghurs and m more and deeper investigation is happening um, for over concern about that. Uh, so thank you for that update and alarm me. I'll tweet retweeting that one out. You can deep dive on that. Um, and then also, I mean, there's it still needs to be more fully uh, understood and, and there's no doubt they, there will be a counterpoint raised and an objections raised and it'll be interesting to explore those. And here's a really interesting point that David just tweeted eight minutes ago uh, from Reuters that I'm retweeting. US, the US, America spied on Angela Merkel and other Europeans with the help of, the, of Denmark. <laughs> uh, the US secret agencies spied on Merkel and other top officials um, with, in a partnership with Denmark's foreign intelligence unit to spy on senior officials, uh, including their neighbors in Sweden. Well, that's going to make uh, uh, summer parties between the Danes and, uh, and the Swedes uh, a lot of fun. Um, so I just retweeted that one. So <laughs> you can deep dive on that. Um, we, uh, another one from Poppy uh, back on the Russia front, uh, all about the Arctic, which is becoming a, a super shaping up to become a future battleground of sorts uh, between Russia and the U.S. and China and others for control of the Arctic, which is amazing. It's gone kind of uncontested up until 2021, but everyone's getting excited all simultaneously as the uh, the passageways start to open up due to global warming. Uh, it can greatly reduce shipping times uh, across the globe by going through these new paths that didn't exist now that ice is opening up. And it's and there's potential oil to be had. So the uh, the greedy fuckers are getting greedy as usual, and uh, the moon will be <laughs> the moon and Mars will be next. You you heard it here first. Um, <laughs> I'm still I'm still I'm still back at uh, hey, hey Angela uh, V Gates V Gates yeah. yes <laughs> the previous story like yeah. that's going to be some. Uh, Interesting uh, small talk yeah. on the previous one. Florian shared a, a brilliantly worded article I'm retweeting. Is is Southeast Asia ready for the U.S.-China tech decoupling? Some regional countries have sought to diversify, but this doesn't necessarily mean choosing sides. And this is a great point. Uh, as somebody here in Bangkok, you know, in Thailand, like Lakeisha and myself, this is a huge issue coming down the road at us uh, in Southeast Asia. Because uh, both China and America are very strongly uh, trying to date Thailand. <laughs> uh, China wants to date Thailand for its food. Um, America wants to date Thailand so it doesn't help China. And um, especially on the tech front, because India is banning Chinese tech. And so is Japan. But what about Southeast Asia? It's going to be very interesting to see if um, if Thailand uh, makes, you know, because currently the Chinese apps are totally welcome here. And uh, as we were talking about on the on the tourism earlier at the beginning of the hour, the biggest tourist group to Thailand is China. So I think you can make a safe assumption as to how this will play out 
being that Thailand sells a lot of its food to China and a lot of its tourists come from China, I think we know which side Thailand will ultimately side with. But uh, America is not going to let that go down without some heavy uh, dating. But this article is really interesting that I just retweeted about uh, recent developments suggest that both China and the U.S. are taking steps towards unraveling or decoupling their technology ecosystems. Nowhere has this been more evident than the semiconductor industry, which manufactures the chips. Um, the impact of tech decoupling would not be trivial. And research published by the, Indian, the, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, showed potential GDP losses of up to 5% for key global economies for Southeast Asia, a tech decoupling would largely be an unwelcome addition to existing issues sandwiched, sandwiching the region between China and the U.S., such as trade and territorial claims in the South China Sea. And that's, uh, to put it lightly, so that's a fun deep dive if you want to uh, peruse that one. Thank you for that one, Florian. And um, I'll pause to see... Um, uh, if somebody has a, uh, uh, a headline that they want to share from their part of the world, economic, uh, uh, geographically, or professionally, jump in if you've got one. Or, or I got uh, Shaquille just sent one about WhatsApp. Uh, you want to share this one? WhatsApp doesn't have red ticks to indicate uh, about you should not pay attention to or forward such fake messages on WhatsApp. Akil, you still, did Akil jump out? I just read. Thank you. Thank you, Mayor. He might have. Okay. Um, I just tweeted that one. Faraz had an interesting one, Tutter. Uh huh. What's that, Faraz? Faraz, you, you, you pushed up one on um, the Irish government dissuading from crypto, which was quite interesting. I was hoping you'd comment on that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, it's sort of a copy and paste from what uh, the Bank of England put out. You know, Andrew Bailey, beware that you could lose it all. I mean, it's just a recapitulation from the Irish standpoint, but I just find it, yeah, a little bit boring that they got, that, you know, you read the article, it's basically like huh. telling you off because you're thinking about crypto and, you know, doing the usual virtue signaling for, but for stuff. I think we have a crypto room coming up soon, <clears throat> but the... Yeah, I'll uh, be quiet. Yeah, that's right. But the, the uh, Poppy found a great article here from Fortune. Germany is set to become the world's first major economy to legalize commercial use of fully autonomous robo-taxis, beating out the U.S. and China. And there's a photo that you can see just by looking at the tweet. Uh, thank you for this one, Poppy, of Angela Merkel stepping off of a robo-taxi in Germany. I imagine the U.S. spies took this photo. But um, the you take a look at it. It's a ro uh, autonomous robo-taxi in Germany uh, driving around Angela Merkel and her beautiful team um, it's on track to be the first country to legalize fully autonomous robo taxis beating out the u.s and china good for good for germany although not necessarily good for germans uh taxi drivers which uh, have a very strong union which uh were effective in stopping uber from being able to enter germany so i'm curious why the robo taxis are able to happen when uber was not yes go ahead tyler i think some states in the u.s have already done that so maybe not the country as a whole right also, yeah. I just tweeted uh, to uh, the, 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 the tweet account yeah. this article about supercomputing and how that is also leading to partitioning of the Internet. Ah, I see it right here. Thank you for that. Uh, the U.S.-China supercomputing raced um, uh, all over the world. HPC has burst into geopolitics, the um, government policy and the patriarchy. 
partitioning of the internet. And that is a super hot topic about, this is where it gets really wild, folks, because China has its own internet. Uh, the West has a separate internet of sorts, and China might now someday soon force its internet onto Hong Kong. Why do we? Get, why should we suspect this? Because uh, the, there was an article yesterday that there, Hong Kong has each year celebrated the Tiananmen Square massacre anniversary. And last year, it was very, uh, it was live streamed and it was very contentious because it was assumed that people, they, they were told they sh can't do it. But a lot of people did it illegally on a big soccer field near IFC Mall in Hong Kong. And um, this year, they're being told if you do it, it's like a five-year prison sentence. So now that democracy is dead in Hong Kong, um, and they have now a five-year prison sentence for celebrating something they've celebrated every year uh, previously, uh, it's now illegal to celebrate something. Um, it'll be very interesting to see if they very soon have uh, the Chinese internet uh, cut now stretches over the border of Shenzhen and consume Hong Kong, and in which case Hong Kongers, who are able to use Facebook and Twitter and all the apps that are banned in China, will wake up the next day and realize they are now part of the Great Firewall of China and all of their apps no longer work, etc. That's ex I, I would wager that happens in, uh, within the next few months. And no doubt we will report it here when we do. And no doubt they will not, the Hong Kongers will not be able to tell us that it's happening because they will not be able to be on Clubhouse because it's part of the blocked apps in China, but not in Hong Kong. Cheryl, your microphone's blocked. Sorry, your mic. David is in Beijing. He's joining us. Yes, David, do you want to make a comment on the... If there's a way, oh, there's a way. Yes. <laughs> so, Tyler, as you know, um, I actually roam in China with my Hong Kong phone uh -huh. in order to get on to Clubhouse, WhatsApp. I do know this because I've chatted with him uh, through a privacy, a very uh, interesting privacy app, and his phone number is a Hong Kong phone number, which I noted, yeah. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, including my own company, what I have set up um, with China Unicom is I, I pay like $6,000 a month uh, US to get a private connection to my family's data center in Hong Kong. And that's how I get access to all of these things. So this is obviously very concerning for us. Um, to not be able to gain access to foreign data because so much of our business, especially in financial trading, completely depends upon news and access to the West. Um, so I imagine that this will not be a complete shutoff in China. Um, again, uh, much of the censorship is really for mass public domestic consumption in China. Um, at the end of the day, there are too many vital businesses within the mainland that operates uh, based on having the ability to connect with the rest of the world. I mean, for God's sakes, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is all on Twitter, right? So, um, I'm sure there is some, uh, I want to say loophole, but some uh, legal method, I guess you would say, for, for these businesses to remain, uh, to, to, to continue operating in this space. So uh, I'll, I'll keep you guys posted when I find out more. Okay. On the China Thank point, you, somebody did, uh, South China Morning Post did, reached out to young couples to find out if they're going to take advantage of being able to have 
three kids now, and uh, the report is China population millennial couples decry unaffordable childcare as fertility rates fall, a lack of affordable childcare, rising costs, rising living costs, and grueling work hours are making many young Chinese think twice about having children. China will have to increase childcare support to boost its flagging birth rate and avoid a population crisis in coming years, experts and parents say. And that's um, in line with why the Nordics are very, very supportive of childcare and um, making it very affordable to have kids. Finland notably even pays people to have kids, $1,000 uh, uh, on delivery at the hospital, if I remember correctly. And uh, any, any Finnish friends in the audience can give us an update on precisely that policy that they have there. Um, and an incredibly generous um, uh, homestay policies in, in Sweden as well for mothers and fathers uh, to, to make that uh, an easy transition. And the companies uh, seem, everyone seems to be on the same page for the most part in, in understanding the, the situation, the bigger picture of all of that. But uh, the, the Chinese young folks are saying that it's, that's, that's essentially the issue is that the childcare really isn't there. And speaking of kind of a healthcare thing, we did cover at the end of last week, and it's being st still has some gas in the tank on this story about Best Buy Health launching their uh, Live Smart for active aging community. Um, people seem to really like this concept. Uh, uh, we we mentioned that big players are getting into the healthcare space in the U.S. because it's so tragically fucked up. I mean, America's healthcare system is just utterly. Tragically fucked, as evidenced by our uh, showing in last place in the COVID Olympics. But um, Best Buy is also jumping headfirst into healthcare, in a sense, with their uh, lively smart app, which I think is brilliant in targeting you know, the aging community and the, the urgent care 24-hour service. It's truly brilliant. So I'm going to retweet that out just as a reminder to folks who might not have caught it the first time around. I think it's a... It's a brilliant example of how even retailers can innovate in healthcare uh, and leveraging their existing assets and uh, into new areas. Tyler, uh, yeah. um, I, I also tweeted on, on there, and maybe I'll pull it out and retweet it again, mm -hmm. on that, which is, uh, an article that showed a little bit of a history to that, right, on how Best Buy has built that capability. So it's got like the initiatives that it's been uh, building up mm -hmm. uh, leading to this. So I'll, I'll tweet that out, retweet it if it's if it's uh, not there. Tyler, yeah. we haven't heard of your your favorite TSMC, like not uh, today. Any, not today, but like here, I was my, shocked yeah, but, at but, the scale my, of it. Yeah, my here. Let's. I'll get to that in a second. But my actual real favorite is this article I just retweeted from Poppy, and she might not know it's my real favorite. It's called my favorite 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 is actually a company called Northvolt which is approaching TSMC in, in, in scope and scale. And that's what the headline is all about. It happens to be founded by one of my dear friends named uh, Peter, who um, uh, he and his family stay with me here in Thailand, and I stay with him at his house when I visit Stockholm every month, as many people in the audience know. Peter's become a bit of a superstar in the Nordics uh, for start leaving Tesla as the chief product officer and starting a company called Northvolt to build the gigafactories in Europe for the German auto industry to become EVs, uh, which is an incredibly important role. And you can understand how important Northvolt is because they have the technology and the know-how, being that he was the chief product officer at Tesla and head of supply chain, 
to start building gigafactories so that the Z Germans can figure out how to make EVs because they don't know how to make gigafactories themselves, which is why Tesla went into Berlin and why my friend Peter left Tesla to build gigafactories in Sweden for Z Germans. Anyway, so the headline says technologies uh, to, to slow climate change, meaning batteries, could give a 20% population growth to northern Sweden. What do they mean? Well, it says population could increase as much as one-fifth as 10,000 new workplaces will be created around Northvolt's new gigafactory. 10,000 new workplaces and a a population increase of one-fifth around Northvolt's uh, huge uh, gigafactory facilities up in uh, Huleftio. Construction work is in full swing at Northvolt in Huleftio, where large-scale battery production for EVs is set to start later this year when production reaches planned capacity. Some 6,000 employees will provide European car industry with lithium-ion battery cells by Northvolt, branded as the world's greenest with a minimal CO2 footprint from Huleftio, a municipality of 73,000 inhabitants. 6,000 new workplaces is big. Oh, so it's not it's not 6,000. Yeah, 6,000 new workplaces is essentially... All of the suppliers to Northvolt also have to build factories around the Northvolt factory. They're essentially building a city uh, in Hleftio, which we often joked about when um, over over breakfast when uh, Peter was, you know, when we were daydreaming about just how big of an impact the Northvolt factory, Gigafactory, was going to have on that small town in northern Sweden called Hleftio. And now the journalists, uh, you know, four years later are writing the articles that we used to joke about at breakfast, which is uh, Northvolt is, in fact, going to have a tremendous impact on this little sleepy town in northern Sweden uh, by increasing the population by 20 percent. But congrats to uh, Peter Carlson and the Carlson family and his son Victor's birthday was yesterday. Uh, Congrats to my buddy Victor. So um, the other headline. So to your point, Dave, about TSMC, was, was there a new headline on that today? Uh, Tyler, I, I, this is not TSMC, but uh, fairly relevant and a bit of good news. Okay. I've invited someone who can come on Friday okay. to your show um, immediately after my interview with him on my thing. Um, and he is the regional manager uh, for uh, ASML in Asia. So I think he'll bring sort of very valuable insight to that entire supply chain for semiconductors. Very awesome. Are you, is he going to be on the show with you and David? Uh, me and David? I'm sorry, I, I you, David. you and Justin, I'm sorry. Oh, no. No, <laughs> no. Um, no, no he'll be on my global news thing right. at 10 a.m. Beijing yeah. time. Yeah. So after, right after we finish up there, I'll bring him over. Oh, here fantastic. And, and let, that, let's, let's uh, end it there. That's a perfect point. This, so what we're doing is David, as you know, is brilliant, right? And Justin and he do the, my favorite show on Clubhouse. Then they're now doing it uh, every day. Um, and you're doing it uh, on a UK time. How do we translate that, Jesus? So quick calculation. Um, what is that? 3 p.m.-ish? No, 2 p.m.? 3, 3 a.m. for the UK at 10 a.m. my time, yeah. Yeah. And so I, and is it in your bio? Hopefully it is. Um, anyway. So their fantastic show, which is it? You're doing that for two hours. How long is it? Yeah. So my uh, so this one I'm not doing with Justin because ah, he's okay. probably in bed already. Um, okay. Yeah. So so uh, it's my global news thing, and then I started this thing called Dim Sum Hour. So oh, that's pretty, right. Yeah. <laughs> so at 10 a.m. 
in Beijing. Um, right. We'll do the interview with him and then bring him over afterwards. Oh, very cool. Into this, this time zone. Yes, so so to this particular show. So got it, got your it. Your show is at 2 p.m. For right, so our other time zone, which you can see by clicking on the title of this room, where we will meet later today, normally we stop now and we meet seven hours from now. However, we're going to meet six hours from now. We're moving it up one hour to join with Justin and David's other room that they do together around um, political news from the capitals, it's called, which I love. And you will see me there. And as soon as that show ends, this one will start and we'll kind of just join forces. And I hope you all join us there because it's fantastic political angles. And we we touch on politics, as you hear here, but they really touch into it because that's their area, as you hear from David and Justin even more so. So it's um, we're going to basically double up uh, and link up. And then that's why we're going to move one hour earlier so that we can take advantage of that fun transition but i think it will also help our west coast people who wake up at 7 a.m um it'll be an hour earlier for them hour earlier for you as well so please keep in mind if you if you have been joining us we'll be starting at an hour earlier if you are in the uk that means it's it will be 3 p.m instead of 4 p.m and if you're in um you know uh, central european time that means it will be 4 p.m instead of 5 p.m uh so we hope to see you then and if you can join us beforehand in the room with uh, David and Justin, please do. I think you will love it. And um, they could also use a good Nordic uh, political expert. Hopefully, Carl Bilt will eventually start joining that room. That would be fantastic. Um, yeah, because you have other fantastic folks that join you from all over um, the globe. And that's part of the fun of that room as well. All right. So I, there's a bunch of more headlines that I'll pause on that people are sharing to the Twitter account. And thank you to everyone who's doing it. And my apologies to everyone who had their hands up to Vin and Maha Den- Devon and Ochan Mato and everybody. And it was mainly because we want to keep the gender balance uh, kind of balanced on stage uh, and Van- Vanch as well. Um, but do join us again six hours from now or at this time zone tomorrow where there will no doubt be lots and lots of more um, tech headlines to go into. So we will see you then. Thank okay, you, have, everyone. Have, have a wonderful Great rest show. of your Monday. So yeah, enjoy. Cheers. Thank you. Happy Monday. Thank you. Take care, Cheers. everyone. Goodbye. Thank Bye. you.